untrue. A story is a work of transformative fiction. As time extends, it matters less and less. Hello, I'm Kendra Spring Classic, and welcome back to Reading Between the Lines, a podcast by fandom nerds for fandom nerds. This podcast is all about fan fiction, the much maligned art form that, nevertheless, brings many people cathartic levels of joy, not just in the reading of it, but in the creation of it as well. If this is your first time listening, welcome. We're so glad to have you. But be sure to go back and listen to our previous episodes. These are evergreen stories, which can be revisited again and again. You're certain to discover something new each time. I know I have. In last month's episode, I spoke with Dr. Alex Tankard about the literary and historical context surrounding Black Sails, how it gets its queer history so absolutely right, and what literary influences, besides the very obvious Treasure Island connection, may have been floating around the writer's room throughout the arc of the series. This month, we have an absolute treat for you. Instead of listening to me narrate someone else's story, you'll get to hear Jane Noves narrating the first chapter of her own massive breakup AU, Did the Twin Flame Bruise Paint You Blue? For you Swifties out there, yes, that line should sound familiar, because it's from the 10-minute version of All Too Well, the song that inspired this entire novel of a fic. Jay builds incredible tension between our two boys, opening with them meeting again one year after their first fateful encounter. Stick around afterwards for my discussion with Jay, one you definitely don't want to miss. So grab something hot and steamy and get cozy while the sparks fly with Did the Twin Flame Bruise Paint You Blue by Jay Noves. Did the Twin Flame Bruise Paint You Blue? Written by Jay Noves. Read by Jay Noves. Beginning Notes Hi there. My original idea for this story was to adapt the ten-minute version of All Too Well into a silver flint mod AU. 
I wasn't able to adapt every single line, but I incorporated most of them. Which ones? That will be a fun little surprise slash landmine that'll hurt you later. This story would simply not exist if not for the support of a twall, a fellow fantastic pirate writer and cherished friend. I owe them an immense debt of thanks for the constant encouragement, brainstorming, consultation on toxic relationship dynamics, copious suggestions, and just helping to soothe my spiraling at all hours of the night. Your friendship is invaluable, and I'm more grateful than I can express. Here's the Breakup AU playlist for extra suffering. Take luck and enjoy. This link can be found in the original AO3 work. Chapter 1 Just between us, did the love affair maim you too? All too well, Taylor Swift. Silver cups his hand around the flare of a cigarette, tucked into the alcove beside a building. There's no snow on the ground, not this early in December, but it's fucking freezing regardless, the wind cutting through his outer layers like they're paper. Silver grimaces as the chill sinks into his bones, already making his legs start to ache. He huddles a little closer to the marble facade of the Plaza Hotel, the building hosting the party at which he's supposed to be right now. The sound of traffic on Fifth Avenue is a roaring din in his ears, substantial even at this hour. Taxis and limousines idle in a queue outside, the hot exhaust billowing into the cold as well-dressed NYC denizens stream inside, a procession of glittering who's who. If nothing else, the cold might encourage Silver to actually go inside sooner rather than later. Anyway, the cigarette won't last very long at the rate he's smoking it sucking it down impatiently. The nicotine hits his bloodstream like a cooling balm, smoothing away some of the jitters. The wind whistles and yanks at Silver's coat and his hair, as if trying to get his attention. His curls are going to be in an absolute state from being whipped about, undoing the work of the product he'd put in it. Well, fuck it. The tousled look has always worked for Silver in the past. He'll just act as if it was intentional. He takes another nervous drag, staring up at the gigantic wreath of ornaments in the window above his head. The shiny golden orbs catch hundreds of pinpricks of light from the large illuminated awning above the entrance to the hotel and throw it back into his eyes, dazzling. Each window sports its own enormous wreath, which all twinkle festively at Silver personally, beckoning him in. The annual Max Rackham Holiday Ball kicked off an hour ago. It's practically a gala, extremely ritzy, with invitations highly sought after, and Silver knows he should feel grateful to be on the permanent guest list. Max and Jack both have a flair for party planning and enjoy organizing these huge events, spending the money to be ostentatious for the sake of it, to see and be seen, but also to politely threaten all their friends to attend. Or else. The duo only make such demands once a year, both sporting absolutely terrifying smiles, sharp but cordial. And is it so much to ask? Max had said over the phone. To make an appearance, demonstrate that you are alive and well, contribute to the convivial evening, to eat, drink, and be merry. It's as if she'd had a sixth sense that Silver was back in town, 
phoning him before he'd even officially announced his return to the city, and indicating quite pointedly that he'd better be there. Max had mentioned that Eleanor would be there, along with another handful of names of their mutual acquaintances. And if she's coming, that means there's a chance that... But no. He was never one to attend every party, had to practically be dragged to social gatherings. Even if he had been invited, it's more likely than not that he won't show. And Max wouldn't. She would have told Silver first. He frowns in the middle of exhaling a puff of smoke. Unless she's meddling. Again. Silver dressed with specific intent for tonight's party, even more than usual, considering and then discarding several different outfits. The worse his anxiety, the more effort he puts into his appearance. Unlike his mood or his mess of a life, it's at least something he can control. He can manipulate and maneuver how people see him, even if he cannot fully control how he feels. Silver smooths a hand down the front of his suit, palm-brushing the cross-hatch texture of the fabric. It's a little looser than the last time Silver wore it. He cannot seem to stop dropping weight. Appetite nearly nothing these days. The rich sapphire material still catches the light dazzlingly, and it clings well to his shoulders, tapering down, fitted around the waist enough to flatter. And if he is there, well, he'll certainly recognize it, this lighter version of silver. A better version, trapped in the amber of enchanting memories. He hadn't dressed for him anyway, Silver reminds himself. He hadn't spent hours trying to achieve an effortlessly rakish hairstyle, did not smudge concealer on the bags under his eyes and liner on the lids to perhaps appear less of a disaster than the reality. He didn't stare in the mirror for an indeterminate amount of time, trying to emulate some ghost from a year past to maybe tempt something. He didn't smile bitterly at his reflection, thinking... Not nearly as charming or as pretty as before, are you? Every year added more lines, more misery written to his fucking bones somehow, seeping out regardless of the mask. He certainly hadn't swiped over to the text message in his phone from a few months prior, didn't consider responding to ask, to beg. No, Silver hadn't done any of those things for him. It doesn't matter what Silver looks like, because he won't be there. And Silver doesn't want to see him anyway. He doesn't even know if he could handle it with any manner of calm. That's a lie. Silver knows he can. He can fake anything. That's the whole problem. Always has been. Silver finishes the cigarette, flicking it onto the pavement and stomping out the cherry red brutally. He's still not ready, but it is time nonetheless. He checks his collar, ruffles his hair again, now utterly hopeless, and his knuckles brush against his scarf. The sensation makes Silver's stomach clench with a wave of unexpected memory which he shoves down. It's not the same, it's... Silver takes a deep, shaky breath and loosens his posture, letting the aura settle over him. I'm fine. I'm the most interesting thing in the room, and I know it. Everyone wants to be near me. 
so act like it. He turns on his heel to saunter into the building, flashing a smile at the coat-check girl that makes her cheeks color as she takes his jacket. Keep that safe for me, doll. Maybe I'll see you after, hmm? Silver purrs, then winks at her to get a downright squeak. Irreverent, but charming. The handsome rogue people cannot help but orbit. Silver knows this. He can do it in his sleep. In order to appease Max, he'll show his face for a bit, inhabiting the shape of this sought-after, glittery thing. Then Silver will fuck off to a club with soul-shaking bass and plenty of substances stronger than expensive wine to drown the screaming in his brain. Just like every other night. A few hours of pretending, and then Silver will be able to stop thinking about him, with the assistance of a chemically induced state of bliss. I'm invincible. Nothing can touch me. If Silver repeats it enough times, maybe it will become the truth. After checking his coat and presenting his invitation at the door, Silver is directed from the lobby down a hallway that has been transformed into a forest of glimmering white tree branches. They reach high overhead from their gigantic ornamental pots to form an elegant arch of lights. Miniature pine trees laden with red ornaments are interspersed between them, also decked out in white lights, nearly outshining the hotel's beaded empire chandeliers. It's a stunning display, overly so, and Silver has to blink rapidly as he walks down the hallway. The grandiose decorations only continue as he follows the hallway down towards the low din of holiday music and voices, entering the ballroom proper. A Christmas tree nearly as tall as the ceiling is the centerpiece of the room, laden with silver and gold decorations and topped with a glittery red ribbon. The ballroom houses two more fabulous chandeliers, and the windows sport twins of the wreaths from outside. Boughs of holly are strung up between the columns, and a truly excessive amount of candles burn at each of the tables, which are set around the perimeter of the dance floor. The whole affair is about as over-the-top as Silver would expect from Rackham, but perhaps a bit garish for Max's taste. Silver scans the room obsessively and spots many familiar faces, but no telltale flash of ginger. That hair stands out in any crowd, and he's both relieved and disappointed. The hostess herself is holding court near the center of the room, beautiful as always in a dark blue ball gown that sweeps the floor. There's a classy and understated amount of diamonds at her wrists and throat, and her eyes are lined heavily in her signature coal. Max smiles radiantly as she approaches, placing her hands on Silver's shoulders in order to lean up and air-kiss both cheeks. Silver chuckles, noticing the floral pattern of her dress. It seems they accidentally match this evening. Bonsoir, mon cher, Max greets, her rich accent curling around Silver as cool and calming as an old friend. I am pleased you made it. And she sounds genuine. Has it really been almost a year since Silver has seen her? All of a sudden it strikes him how much he's missed the city, missed Max and the others. Adele, Charlotte, Muldoon, Vane, even Rackham. Silver raises an eyebrow. Didn't give me much of a choice, did you? 
Max simply smiles serenely and doesn't reply, though the sharp little glint in her eye confirms his assertion that it was less of an invitation and more of a decree. Silver casts a glance around the room again, unable to help the nervous habit, eyes flitting over the crowd, searching for one particular face. Looking for someone? Max asks, never one to miss a thing. Uh, just your co-host, Silver replies quickly to cover himself. Haven't seen Jack around. It's only a half-lie. Silver is interested in whatever extremely ostentatious outfit Rackham has chosen for the party. Max lets out a restrained exhale. He is harassing the caterer, I believe. He claimed the canapes were not a genuine wagyu beef. Oh God, what a travesty! Silver says in mock horror, covering his mouth with one hand to hide an amused grin. Max rolls her eyes, but shrugs one bare shoulder. At least if he is distracted, I do not have to babysit him all night. Then Max tucks her arm into Silver's, as if he is her gallant escort. She still leads, though, gliding over to the bar with Silver in tow. De rafraîchissement pour mon invité préféré, et puis you will tell Max too. Oui? She hands Silver a glass of champagne and they catch up for a while. Silver tells her briefly about his few projects in L.A. and the money on the side promoting stuff on Instagram. When Max asks about his screenwriting, Silver deflects. It's not terribly convincing, but she lets it go. Afterwards, Silver makes the rounds. He mingles for the better part of an hour, cruising along from person to person, telling stories, jokes, entertaining various groups with his good face firmly plastered on. Reconnecting with this crowd, being on amicable terms with directors, hiring managers, publicists, other actors, will land Silver more jobs. Despite the genial appearance, Silver feels like a cracked glass trying desperately to hold liquid, already tensed for the blow that will shatter him. He's good at faking it, balancing personalities, at the ebbs and flows of social interaction, at being entertaining and charming, making people like him. Or at least, a version of him. And throughout this charade, Silver expects to find the ghost from his past around every corner, lurking behind every goddamn Christmas tree. The one who still haunts Silver's steps. A constant shadow who saturates the air with his presence, even when he's not physically there. After an hour of cruising and schmoozing and catching up casual acquaintances, the tension starts to melt out of Silver. In its place is a pit in his stomach, empty and reeking of something like melancholy. The party is well underway, and Silver's made the full circuit of the room. It's well past time that he would have made an appearance. He's not here. Silver should be relieved, but all he feels is a sense of resignation and bone-deep fatigue. It's taken the wind out of his sails, the confident line of his shoulders briefly sinking. There isn't anyone here who is going to give Silver what he needs, and he's made the requisite appearance for Max's sake. He finishes his drink and sights Max, crossing the room to say his goodbyes and find a far more interesting evening for himself. 
or at the very least, something that'll make him forget. Are you certain you cannot stay longer, Chaton? she asks. Silver pouts with faux contrition in a way that he knows Max will see right through. Regretfully not, mademoiselle. And indeed, she raises a pointed eyebrow, but he just smiles back at her. Beautiful, as always, though. Tell Jack I said hello and, uh, nice decorations, Silver says, smirking. He kisses the back of one delicate and bejeweled hand, bowing over it like a gentleman from a courtship novel. Merry Christmas, Max. Max scoffs at his theatrical manners, but she is amused despite herself. After a moment, her face smooths, and Silver finds himself on the other end of piercing scrutiny that always manages to make him feel skewered. It's as if he's looking in a mirror. What? Silver asks playfully, though it sounds weak even to him. His disarming smile is set imperfectly on his face, threatening to fragment if Max pushes too hard. For a moment, sorrow is writ large in her brown eyes, and the imperfect vessel of Silver's roiling feelings sprouts a few more spiderweb cracks. Please don't say it. Max blinks it away with a sigh and squeezes Silver's hand, still caught in hers. I worry for you, she says simply, and then lets him go. Silver swallows back the desperate impulse to just talk to her, really talk, and admit how hard it's been, why he's back. Instead, Silver opens his mouth to reassure with the same trite and rehearsed lines. His eyes shift nervously over Max's shoulder for just a moment. A few people milling about in the center dance floor migrate towards the bar, and suddenly, through the crowd, Silver spots him. The person he's both hoped and feared to see the entire evening. James Flint stands not fifty feet away from Silver, chatting with Eleanor, his mouth quirked in a half-smile as she says something amusing. There's no fanfare or drama or some grand entrance like Silver has been conjuring in his mind over and over again. No, Flint is suddenly just here, winked back into existence, careening into Silver's life. Silver has not seen him in a year, barring the weak moments obsessively checking Flint's rarely updated social media. And now Flint is right across the room. The floor lurches out from under Silver, and his balance is wobbly like the first time he tried to use crutches. He surreptitiously taps his left leg down into the floorboards, feeling the vibration of the motion move through his prosthetic and up into his thigh. It grounds Silver somewhat, reminding him where he is and that he is indeed still standing. Seeing Flint is like watching the sun once more crest the horizon after decades of unfriendly and overcast skies. He's standing directly under a chandelier, a halo of light silhouetting him as if something divine, like a beacon to lead Silver unerringly through any gloom. There is nothing more vibrant than the burnished copper of Flint's beard in this moment. That one detail has the world flaring back into color when Silver hadn't even noticed it turned grayscale. 
in the wake of the shock that makes Silver's blood thrum, his heart thudding in his ribcage, new details trickle in. Flint's beautiful red hair is gone, shaved off entirely. He's been pared down to hard lines, his cheekbones and jaw all the more striking, unhidden by any veil. The style suits him startlingly well, but Silver mourns the loss of something he'd once taken for granted. How it had looked threaded through his fingers, how brilliantly it caught the sunlight. The short fuzz that remains is darker so close to the scalp, more of an auburn than the cinnamon red Silver remembers, and he suddenly misses Flint's long hair with a pang so strong it hurts. There are other changes as well. More lines around Flint's mouth, his beard grown in thick and full, though just as beautifully groomed as always. Something about this new version of Flint exudes a somber energy. Whereas before he'd been stoic until drawn out of his shell, but capable of light-hearted sweetness, now there is a weariness settled permanently into the line of his shoulders. Flint clearly spent time deliberating over his outfit just as Silver did. He's clad all in light gray, a suit Silver has never seen before. It's tailored beautifully. The fabric clings to Flint like a lover, indecently, and a zing of helpless lust curls in Silver's belly. It's altogether too hot in the room, despite the winter season. Flint has put on weight in the last year. His legs and chest stretch the bounds of the material, muscles flexing underneath expensive fabric, his frame thick and sturdy as an oak tree. Silver's eyes catch on the open collar of his pristine white shirt, the lack of tie, the peak of ginger chest hair beyond, the gold earring Flint still favors in his left lobe. Jesus fucking Christ! Silver takes a shuddery breath, frozen in place as the world slows to an interminable crawl around him. The things Silver could do to him— Peel him out of that suit in the bathroom and get his hands on the swell of that chest. Flint looks over then, his eyes meeting Silver's, and his face cracks down the middle like a devastating fault line. For an endless moment, Flint's expression is lost, mouth parted and eyes desperate, like a starving man seeing a feast. Flint snaps his mouth closed, schools his face to hide the brief vulnerability under placid congeniality, and Silver can't help but be impressed beneath his spark of panic. Silver whips his head back to Max, wide-eyed and terrified. She gives him a look that manages to be both fond and smug somehow. She pushes him gently. Go, she murmurs. Silver moves as if in a trance and watches as Flint does the same. Drawn together like the gravitational pull of the moon on the tides, they drift away from their respective conversations to meet in the middle of the ballroom. Silver pays no heed to the press of bodies around him, tunes out the ambient noise of the party in favor of staring at Flint. He swears he can hear his breathing, can feel his skin even from this distance. They create their own private bubble, as ever, a haven away from reality for the moment. Flint's eyes drink Silver in, flitting all over him, 
perhaps cataloging his own changes as Silver had done, though his expression remains neutral. Only his eyes give away the intensity of reaction. Profound emotion moves darkly just under the surface, swimming behind his eyes like creatures in the deep. Hello, John, Flint says softly, and God, his voice hits Silver with a wave of nostalgia and unadulterated want. How Silver has missed the sound of his name in Flint's mouth. With it, he hears a hundred other moments in a hundred other contexts echoing in his ears, layered over the simple greeting. Silver's mouth is suddenly dry as a bone, and he cannot muster a return greeting, all words deserting him. He cannot say it yet, cannot say Flint's name. He could barely dare to think it earlier. Somehow, Silver knows that saying it aloud would tip them over into dangerous territory, and Silver is terrified of what vulnerable things might fall out of his mouth. He simply nods back in acknowledgement, a carefully civil smile perched on his mouth. They stare at each other from a safe distance for several long moments. Then, Flint shifts, hesitates, as if unsure what to say next, and Silver recognizes the need to pretend nothing strange is occurring, to pretend they were not. It will be easier, the banal small talk, than broaching a fraught history. Silver clears his throat. So, uh, what did Max have to threaten you with to get you here? He offers up into the heavy silence, striking a light tone. They both know this is hardly Flint's crowd, and Eleanor has had to threaten Flint to attend promotional events in the past. Flint looks nearly as grateful as Silver feels to be in safer waters. Bribed, actually, Flint replies with a rueful look. She promised to host a showcase next month for some of my new paintings. Silver remembers Flint all flecked in paint, wearing faded and comfortable clothes and smiling at Silver so warmly as he gazed from behind an easel. Flint's mood was infectious then, face bright with the fervent pleasure of sheer creation. Those lazy afternoons they spent tucked away from the world of celebrity, Flint painting for hours and taking frequent breaks to curl up next to Silver in the sun-drenched bedroom, fingers tracing Silver's face, as if he needed to touch in order to memorize the shapes, the lines, before returning to the canvas. Silver shakes away the memories, clearing his throat. Ah, uh, <clears throat> and so that's going well, then? It emerges halting and wooden. Silver wants to smack himself. Somehow he's bouncing from savvy conversationalists back to awkward as fuck, as if he's never spoken to another human being in his life. It's like an internal ping-pong game between his brain and mouth. But Flint has always set him off balance like this, and the unspoken past weighs down the very air until it's thick with tension like the sky before a storm. Flint's face does something complicated, too quick for Silver to parse. He makes a non-committal sound. Well enough. Silver eyes Flint, a quick up-down sweep. Well enough to afford that fucking suit that is driving him crazy, he thinks. Another beat of awkward silence passes, and then Silver babbles out the first thing in his head. You cut your hair. 
Clint runs an idle hand over his scalp, and Silver tracks the motion, trying not to swallow too heavily. So did you, Clint replies mildly. Silver laughs quietly. Hardly as much, I'd say, he replies, ruffling his own curls just to watch Flint's face twitch, eyes darting to follow the motion in return. The unspoken words, the lies, the betrayal, the yearning, it all hides behind the halting way they speak. This is murky terrain, dark and swamped with traps. They each take careful steps, circling each other warily like two feral cats with half-healed wounds, fearful to trust again, but unable to pretend there could ever be another outcome than this. When did you get back in town? Flint asks, nervous energy betrayed by the way he twists the ring on his right pinky around and around. The sight is so familiar, this anxious habit of Flint's, that Silver is again thrown backwards in time, awash with memories, and he has to fight to muster a response through his disorientation. A month or so ago. I saw... Flint cuts himself off with a small cough. Uh, <clears throat> Eleanor told me you've started a new project. Silver chuckles, trying to keep it breezy. He shakes his head dismissively. Just a TV movie. No big deal. You know me. He smiles brightly with all his teeth. Whatever they'll pay me to do. A man carrying a tray of hors d'oeuvres bumps into Silver's back, nearly dropping the whole tray. Flint makes an aborted movement out of the corner of Silver's eye as he regains his balance. The server stops to mutter a quick apology before moving on. All at once, the noise and crowd of the party rushes back in, encroaching upon their reunion making Silver prickle with irritation. He realizes they've been talking over it instinctively, but now... Silver wants to hear the distinct cadence of Flint's voice, every detail, and wants to soak in the full measure of his presence. Doesn't want all of those eyes on them. Industry people who know both of them, who will form their own opinions about what is happening. He doesn't want any outside influence to sully this... Whatever this even is, it's unclear whether there's anything left to ruin or whether Silver will need any help sabotaging it. Regardless, he wants Flint all to himself. It's only polite, he reasons, to have a real conversation, catch up. It'll be easier to do so in a quieter and more private venue. Silver had been on his way out anyway. What difference does it make if he leaves with Flint? It's only a friendly drink. The past safely buried. Flimsy justifications swirl in Silver's head, the words falling out of his mouth without conscious thought. You want to get... He begins, but Flint speaks at nearly the same moment. I really hate gatherings like... Flint huffs a laugh. Go ahead, he says, waving a hand. Silver offers up what he hopes is a winsome and tempting grin. Do you want to get a proper drink? Flint raises an eyebrow, glancing at the fully stocked open bar. Ah, uh, Rackham's taste in wine isn't my favorite, Silver clarifies. As reasons go, it's as weak as tissue paper, but Flint still nods in assent. Yeah, I do. 
Flint weaves through the crowd, silver trailing in his wake. He keeps a careful distance, like the earth orbiting the sun, close enough to catch its warmth and just far enough to avoid being scorched to ash. Any collision between them now would surely spell doom, so of course Flint stops abruptly to allow a group to pass in front of him. Silver sways into his space, close enough to his back to feel the heat radiating from underneath his jacket, to inhale the scent of his cologne, and Silver is dizzy with it. Silver takes a hasty step back, the crowd shifts again, and they proceed. As he slips out of the ballroom, Silver looks back to catch a glimpse of Max's expression. She's watching them, smiling close-mouthed, but radiating triumph. It confirms beyond a doubt what Silver already suspected, that Max orchestrated this entire reunion, effortlessly predicting and maneuvering him and Flint both. Silver narrows his eyes at her accusingly from across the room, but he's begrudgingly impressed. Max simply gestures coolly towards the door with one eyebrow raised, effortlessly communicating the, You're welcome, Chaton. It has yet to be determined whether or not Silver should be thanking her. A few blocks down the road, they duck into another hotel bar, just as fancy as the plaza, but without nearly so many eyes. With the plaza drawing the crowds, it's nearly quiet here, unusual for a Friday night in Manhattan. There is still a fairly modest crowd of designer suits and dresses present, the sound of murmured conversation underneath relaxing classical piano sets a much more serene atmosphere. There's plenty of room at the bar itself, and Silver slides onto a green leather stool gratefully. It had been a fairly short walk, but even a top-of-the-line prosthetic cannot prevent his leg from chapping in this cold. Silver flags down the bartender and orders the signature holiday cocktail, a white Russian made with plenty of peppermint syrup. Flint looks at him incredulously, but then shakes his head in amusement. Gonna rot your teeth right out of your head, Flint mutters, before quietly requesting an old-fashioned. Of course he does. Flint hasn't changed at all in certain regards. Old man, Silver thinks fondly. He smirks at Flint a bit coyly around the straw in his mouth, barely keeping the flirty remark from escaping. Flint swirls his bourbon, then silently takes a sip, staring at Silver with such loaded significance over the rim that the tension between them crests like a wave. Silver's nerves crackle under Flint's regard until he cannot bear it and feels once again pressured to speak. "'Had no idea I'd see you tonight,' Silver says casually, an opening volley. "'It is, of course, a complete lie, but he's fishing.' He's not even sure for what, exactly. Simple reaction, maybe? Some proof Flint, too, secretly hoped to see him there? Quite the surprise. He wraps his hands around his glass, tapping rhythmically. Flint hums in acknowledgement. Definitely unexpected. There is something strange in his tone that Silver cannot quite parse. You know those two conspired to kiss in the same room, Silver asks. Max and Eleanor. He scowls dramatically. Meddlers. Flint's mouth twists. Yeah, I figured as much. 
I remember thinking it was odd when Max reached out. She hasn't spoken to me in, well... He trails off, sentence dying, half-finished. Flint frowns down at his hands for a moment, and then peers up, pinning Silver under the weight of his eyes and all that could be swirling in that look if Silver cared to fall in. Silver remembers vividly the last time he, Flint, and Max had been in a room together, and too many other nights besides. He watches Flint remembering it, too. Silver takes another quick drink, then rushes to fill the silence to avoid that conversation at all costs. Did you see that Rackham hired a chetlist to play Carol of the Bells all night? Pretentious dick. Thinks he's more evolved because he's a stage actor. Silver says, putting big eye-rolling emphasis on the word. Like, you're hardly Patrick Stewart, you twat. Flint chuckles into his drink, eyes crinkling. Silver's skin flushes with pleasure, inordinately proud that he's still able to amuse Flint with his idle riffing. I thought the chocolate mints in the restroom were a nice touch, Flint allows. Silver scoffs. I guarantee you that was Max. That's the sort of unobtrusive classiness that has her stamp on it. Actually, one would think she'd rein Jack in more, but I guess they're bankrolling the event 50-50. The forced civility of the encounter is starting to wear on Silver, both of them pretending they're just old acquaintances having a chat. As much as it's keeping Silver from tipping over a dangerous precipice, it hurts to be sitting so close to Flint and yet not be able to touch him, to be speaking with him at last but saying nothing of consequence, to watch his lips quirk and not be able to taste that smile. They lapse into silence again, caught up in gazing, their eyes drawn to each other like polarized magnets. Between the words lie sentiments Silver aches to say, but cannot. Come closer. Please. I missed you. I missed you, I... The only sound is the ice rattling in Flint's glass, the far-off ripple of conversation from the other patrons, Silver's heart thudding like a drum in his ribcage. He attempts to take deep, even breaths, even as Flint's stare calls to him like a siren's song, a whirlpool of dark viridian tempting him to jump, to leap the small distance between their chairs that feels like miles. Silver swallows heavily. Uh, another round? All right, Flint says low and private, not breaking eye contact as he signals the bartender with a gesture. They get their drinks. Silver asks politely after Flint's family. Flint comments on the party decorations. They trade banal chatter back and forth, and all the while continue to stare at each other. But eventually they run out of small talk, and all that is left is the sound of all the things they aren't saying. The below-the-surface conversation their eyes have been having is somehow cacophonous, encompassing everything and making Silver's brain spit static. Thoughts chase each other through his head in dizzying circles. Is this really it? Are we really leaving it like this? It's gotten late, but neither move from their stools, nor do they call for another drink. 
Flint seems as unsure as silver, fidgeting restlessly, no idea how they're meant to disengage. The tension ratchets up by the second until Silver might scream for how it crawls beneath his skin. So he decides to just fucking say something. Get it over with. See you around, I guess, Silver says, standing from the bar stool, a bit tipsy, but steady enough. He slides a few folded bills under his empty glass. As Silver idles there, something possesses him to offer his hand to shake. It's utterly absurd, but what the fuck else is he supposed to do? The evening hasn't gone at all as he'd expected, and for once he has not a shred of a backup plan. What he really wants seems frustratingly out of reach, and he's tired. They've been careful not to touch all night. So when Flint reaches out to grasp Silver's hand, it's like a spark on a powder keg. Flint squeezes Silver's hand firmly, once eyes still married to each other, and his tongue flicks out to wet his bottom lip. Silver gasps softly as Flint lets his fingers drift up and along the inside of Silver's wrist, far too deliberate to be an accident. He caresses the skin there lightly, fingertips warm, far more intoxicating than the alcohol. Flint's touch ignites, sizzling along that small contact, it consumes all the oxygen in the room until Silver can't breathe. It is so much and yet nowhere near enough, and Flint's eyes, all night, his goddamn eyes. He's given up any appearance of restraint, staring at Silver like a ravenous shark scenting blood. Long moments pass, and still Flint doesn't let go, tracing the veins of Silver's inner wrist with his fingertips. It's maddening, lighting up every nerve from his palm to his elbow to his cock, surging to life in his slacks. Do you want to? Flint begins in a rush, voice husky. Yes, Silver whispers before he can finish the sentence. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Jay Noves back to the podcast. If you missed her the first time, Jay was our featured author in episode two. You turned me into somebody loved. That episode was so fantastic and our discussion so engrossing that as much as we dug into character motivations and themes, as well as talking about Jay's process of story construction, I felt we barely scratched the surface. So of course, I had to have her back. Today, we're not only discussing her long-form fic, referred to within the fandom as the Break of Bayou, but also geeking out with some shop talk about the art of audio narration, accents that confound us, the choices we make when voicing masculine presenting characters, the editing process, and just what drives audiobook narrators to connect with media this way to begin with. I suspect, since Jay has already made an indelible mark on the fandom with her body of work, that mark being a bruise, thank you so very much, that she needs no further introduction. So let's just dive right in. So Jay, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you back. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm super happy to be here. And I, I'm so flattered that you have invited me back. 
I, I enjoyed our talk so much last time. I have just been devouring all of your work. I have this gorgeous copy, which this is an audio medium, so you can't see this, but I have this gorgeous copy. I can't of, see Silver's uh, ass. <laughs> no, and it is glorious. Thank you, Kelsey. <laughs> what would we do without Kelsey, truly? I do not know. I do not know. Of Did the Twin Flame Brews Paint You Blue by Jay Noves? And it is thick man 138,000 words yes can you hear this can you hear this this is like me flipping this massive tome okay so I am so excited to talk to you um as everybody has heard um prior to this interview we featured your first chapter of your audio narration or podfic of this story and it's absolutely beautiful your narration style is gorgeous um i remember you sent me the the audio when you had it ready and i just listened and i was i was initially going to listen to see if i had to like edit any clicks or anything i was just wrapped just spellbound the whole time and then when that first chapter ended i was like oh, oh what's, no what's next <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, yeah i'm so glad that's exactly the effect i wanted <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you have anything, any more of it recorded or? Oh, not at this time. So I, I've been working uh, this contract for the last five months and I was, I was really lucky to find time to, to record uh, the first chapter because it was very intensive um, and I wanted it to be right. And then, as you know, the editing mm. takes so much longer than actually getting the raw audio down, but I want to record the rest of it. Of course it's uh but it's that's so much of it. Um, the lo- I think the longest project I have done prior to this would have been, uh, it might have been The Salt in the Sea, which is nine hours. Mm-hmm. And um, this one, I-, I usually get about per 3,000 words, it's 30 minutes of audio once it's cut down. And this is 138,000. <laughs> so yeah. um, quite a lot of quite a lot of stuff to record and a lot of intense intense dialogue that would need a lot of takes so it it would be a very long project but eventually um for sure I definitely want to do that it's it's on my it's on my very long queue of fandom projects that I want to get to yeah I have a similar pace in in terms of um recording length I have found over the course of this podcast that about 10,000 words equals an hour of of Mm -hmm. finished audio. So, yeah, I'm working on um, The Truth About Eros right now, and that one is 21,000 words. So that's probably the length of that story is probably going to be just a little, you know, north or south of two hours. So I'm excited about that. And I found that the, you know, the longer the episode is, the more people listen. Um, The shorter episodes just don't. I because you know I'm the same way when I'm scrolling and I'm looking for a podcast to listen to I want an investment yeah I want I I don't want something that I'm gonna have to be stopping you know halfway through opening the cafe and finding someone else something else to listen to because god forbid it rolls into the next thing that I was partially worth listening in Mm -hmm. and and didn't like enough to finish (laughs) well I'm so glad to hear that because we've talked about before I'm not sure if it was it was on on if we were live or not but it's actually really difficult for me to listen to audio content I, it's like something I find so hard to do and so I, I have no frame of reference for what you know what people do enjoy when they mm. when they want to listen to a podcast because 
I, I listen to a lot of music, right? That's my audio content, but um, books and podcasts are sort of, it's really just hard to focus. Um, I can't really multitask. So, uh, but I'm, I'm really glad to hear that people like the longer episodes because, you know, you want to, you want to get into these meaty stories that are, you know, several thousands of words long. Yeah. Um, those are the ones you want to pick. And so, yeah, that's, that's really great news. I'm, I'm so happy. I'm so happy yeah. for you. <laughs> but yeah, those are the, those are the ones that I really want to kind of sink my teeth into ones that mm-hmm. ha- you have time to build up mm-hmm. the emotional the intensity yeah. and yes, finding those with those, with the rhythm. I, f- I feel like every single story that I have selected for the podcast has in it some musicality, some rhythm yeah. that you mm-hmm. find and, um, and that's why, because not every story is structured to be read out loud. And it doesn't mean it's good or bad. It just means that it is going more towards our oral history of storytelling rather than a more academic or, I guess, to in today's you know, uh, pop culture, a lot more kind of media savvy base where, mm-hmm. you know, they're incorporating text messages and things like that. And right. that it's, it's not as compelling, but something that has like just musical prose, I love, absolutely love and just juicy meaty dialogue. So that uh, the musical prose is really helpful. Um, I'm actually, because we're talking about it, I was going to sort of move to one of the questions you asked about recording other people's work Mm, Uh, because because for me I can hear exactly how it's supposed to be said because I wrote it but for other people's work it's exactly what you just said about you have to find there's there's sort of like metadata in writing in certain types of writing and it tells you how it wants to be read and not not all works do that that's true Um, Because I feel like some writers, they hear the story in their head as they're writing and you can tell when they do. And then there are stories that I do really love, but when I'm recording them, I I'm tripping over uh, essentially a tongue twister or there are five clauses on a run on and I Mm -hmm. can't breathe. And I'm like, ah, this person does not read their stuff out loud. Again, like you said, it's not a bad or good thing. It's just that it's a specific challenge that because because recording doing podfic and doing any kind of audio narration of of a written work is adaptation it is taking something that was not meant necessarily to be uh audio and we are now transforming it um you know it's its own it's its own uh art form and own skill set and it's it's voice acting but it's also it's also what i was saying about you you have to understand the story and what the writer wanted. I mean, listen, I know there are a lot of, there are a lot of folks who do audio stuff for, you know, for a job and they just need to churn it out. And I've listened to it and it's fine. It's, it's passable. It's, you know, it's accessible, which is important, but the amount of time that I want to take on this, because this is always going to be a hobby for me is just, I, 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 take the same amount of time and care with it as I do my own projects. Um, Which is why I really only record things for people who I know. And I love their story so much that words simply won't suffice anymore to explain how much I loved it. And I need to perform it. Like there's something in me about it. And I see what the characters are saying. I see what they mean and how they're feeling. And I need to feel with them in a way that I can help tell the author about. 
Um, it's it's kind of like it, it's not possession, but it's like you get to sink into them and experience the story in an entirely new way that only that only you, you can only do through performing it. Um, yes. So for me, it's that's the experience. You know, it's it's a deep connection to the story. Um, and it's not something that I do for just anyone's anyone else's work. It's usually someone who I know pretty well. And I always, you know, I always connect with them first. I'm like, how would you feel about about me doing this? Because I'm not going to I know a lot of authors have blanket permission because it's cool to make things, you know, more accessible and have audio versions. That's great. But for me, because it takes so long and it takes so much it's a labor of love, as you know. Um, I really have to know the person at least a little bit, um, and it's a present to them. It's mm-hmm. at, at at the core, it's a thing for one person because also, as you know, Podfic does not get as much engagement as uh, just fan fiction or fan art. Oh yeah, for that, ma- for that matter. Oh yeah, I can tell you that. <laughs> I think people just forget to click kudos because they download mm-hmm. it. They just mm-hmm. for- they actually just forget to click kudos. They don't. They definitely don't comment, but they. They just forget. Um, and I, you know, that that made me sad at first, but it is just what it is. And so I'm doing it for one person. I'm doing it for the author. If they like it, then that's all that matters. I am very much in agreement of having to have that connection, especially the connection to the story. And as I go forward with an episode, I do work a lot with the author. And and yeah, I'm always going to reach out before mm-hmm. I choose a story. I'll have my hopes set for it, but yeah. I always do reach out to the author because I'm not going to do it if the author is not going to participate because yeah. it's not just about the story. It's about them. No, and for it, sure. if it was just about the story and it was, then it, then I would just record a podfic and I would just put it on AO3. Mm-hmm. But this is about giving people a platform to talk about their art and talk about, you know, how much it means to them. And this part of it, the the conversation part of it yeah. has been so enriching. And it's one of the things that, you know, I can go back and I can listen to, to the story again. Sure. I love re-listening to the interviews because <laughs> there's so much that we talk about mm-hmm. that, you know, I can, I can go back and re-listen. I'm like, oh, and I get my mo- mind blown again, just mm-hmm. by the insight that people, that people bring to it. I agree in terms of taking the time um, mm-hmm. instead of not just banging it out, just taking the time to nuance the audio yeah, for sure. um, and, you know, go back and it's just, it's never good enough. You go back and if it is not perfect and yes, those run on sentences that you have to like, <laughs> I'm just like, where, oh, where's the air? I need air. <laughs> Dear God, where do I breathe? And it is adaptation because there are times where I have struggled and struggled and struggled. And I'm like, listen, this is just not a readable sentence for mm-hmm. my mouth. It's not. No. And I have gone to the author and I have said, would you mind terribly? If yeah. I just did this, tweaked it a little. It it's the same thing, but I can say it better. So, <laughs> and it yeah, just it's gonna tricky. sound it's gonna sound a lot better if I read it this way than if I'm gasping or if it's just a word that I'm tripping over, like crazy mm-hmm. tripping over. Yeah, and I've done that in very small amounts with some of the stories that that has like really turned it over. So it, yeah, it is 100%. It is adaptation because in the same way that any book 
to film, book to stage, anything is an adaptation because anytime you get uh, in any actor putting anything onto it, any interpretation yeah. that is an adaptation. Mm-hmm, um, and voice sure. acting is very much acting because inflection can change so much about something. Take in point the 50,000 adaptations of Jane Eyre, mm-hmm. where all read differently. Rochester, you can hate him in one iteration. He can say the exact same thing, different mm-hmm. inflection, and you can love him in that iteration. It's oh, all about it's all about the tone and the interpretation. And I, th- that's one of the most exciting things. And when you talked about making these podfix as a gift, mm-hmm. that's the whole reason that I started this podcast. When you love something so much that you have to hear it out loud, you have, you have to. to read it out loud, you have to perform it. It's very much akin to musical theater. That's the whole idea of like, when words don't suffice, you break into song. When reading doesn't suffice, I have to pace back and forth in my living room (laughs) and read it out loud. And I do. Like, I will, I I will be like, oh, this passage is crunchy passage. So (laughs) good. (laughs) I'll tell the author, I said, I loved your words so much. I had to lovingly hold them each in my mouth. Like, I know I need them. I need to hold them in my mouth. Absolutely. That's that's how I feel about it. That's why it's so important to work so closely with the author, right? Is mm-hmm. that I say, hey, I did this take. I did four versions of it with different inflections. I don't know which one is the right one because it's your story. Let's make a decision here. And I send them that. Or like you said, hey, this is really awkward. I tried a bunch of times. It doesn't sound right. What do you think? You know, I want you to make the call on that um, because- because sometimes I just, I, I don't feel like I know enough to make that call. Like I, I can hear Silver or Flint saying a thing a few times and I do it a, a few different ways. And then I'm like, okay, this is a very key point of dialogue. And I think I know what the author wanted, but I think there's a few different ways to interpret it. And let's, uh, you know, I want them to love it. And they usually do. Very few times the author's like, oh, can you change this? But I'm always very open to that. And I let them know that it won't offend me. I say, hey. It's your story. And uh, if you want me to retake this line, I will. Or, you know, not not just for like, oh, I pronounced that wrong, which which can happen. But like, hey, if you don't think he, you know, one time someone came back and said, I feel like you need to hit this word harder. And I said, "Okay, cool. I can do that. I love that. That's very clear, very clear communication. (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of adaptation involves accents and getting into character Mm -hmm. uh, from an acting standpoint. And um, when I first started this, like the the first story that I did that I was just terrified of an accent was when I did Stitch with its color, which features Maudie. Mm-hmm. And I did not want to mess up Maudie's accent. I didn't mm-hmm. want it to sound like a caricature. But now that I did that and I kind of, you know, looked that monster in the face, yeah. I, I feel very confident with Maudie's accent because right. Maudie is featured in uh, Truth About Eros and I'm feeling very confident about that. Good. One that I am still terrified of, <laughs> terrified, <laughs> is Max. And you did oh, that yeah. so beautifully. Oh, so beautifully. Thank how you. hard, how long did you work on that? I want oh, you to gosh. be honest. Kendra, so don't make... <laughs> Kendra, you don't even understand how many takes I stitched together. You just got to hear the finished product. <laughs> so I will say the thing that you talked about, it was my story. So I had the benefit to just change the line. 
I just yeah. translated a bunch of her lines into French because it was not going to work otherwise. One of my degrees is in French, so I speak French. And so it is one of those accents that I know I can do. So like I went and I listened to Max a bunch of times and I practiced and I practiced, but I still had to like chunk it. You know, I could do it really well for a couple words and then it fell off and it wasn't what I wanted. And she has such a very specific accent because it's not just mm-hmm. French. It's they're not. Doing yeah. a, they're doing like this, this Creole accents in there as well. And then uh, Jessica Parker Kennedy, she's lilting, right? Because she's always very performative, right? Because she's twisting people around her finger. And so she, the way she speaks isn't just a French accent. It's a very musically lilting French accent that also has the Creole in there. And so that's hard. And she hits syllables differently than a standard French accent. And so, no, it took a lot of work. I was agonizing in here. I was sweating and over, over my keyboard and mic, Um, my spouse, you know, I went downstairs, I soundboard off of him a lot. And I was like, okay, does this sound stupid? And I just, you know, I was going through it and he goes, it doesn't sound stupid, but it does sound like you're having trouble with the word demonstrate. And he says, isn't there a French cognate or like almost a direct cognate? And I said, there is, it's démontré. And he says, you should use that. And I go, all right. He goes, it's your story. You can do whatever you want. So I just changed the line into French Yeah. and Hey, that's great. Cause it's my story, but no, it was hard. And uh, even doing that, it took like 10 different chunks to be painstakingly stitched together. It was the hardest part of the editing. And she has maybe 10 lines in that chapter maybe uh, yeah. but I, but it was a it was a challenge that I was issuing myself because I don't typically do accent work I typically try to evoke the character in a different way because I'm not confident with that yet but I was like hey we're gonna do something new and fun for this one we're gonna do Max's accent we don't have to do her forever she's only in a very few amount of parts so I know I can just do that but it was hard. So yeah, no, uh, it did not just come off the cuff out of my mouth like that. Absolutely not. That's, that's no editing is magic. <laughs> yes, it's, it absolutely is. Yeah. That's about how, that's about how it was with, with Maudie's accent. Mm-hmm. I recorded, um, a little chunks of it and I sent it to Etoile. I played it for my husband. I played it. Like, I was like, yeah. please tell me, please, please tell me. I like, if it, if it sounds bad, please tell me. Don't, don't be nice. Please tell me if it sounds bad mm-hmm. because I really don't. Yeah, because you don't want it to, f- yeah. to sound bad. Well, yeah. and th- that's the thing is, so at least for me it, it, to get into that, I, I've always been like a little, a little mimic. Um, I've always been able to do voices if I hear them and I do little sounds and little accents, but it does take just listening to the actress, just playing Zaytou talking over and over and over mm-hmm. again. And then I can pull it for those few moments doing it like good and strong in a way that I think is good, which is really hard if that character is, has so much dialogue that you've never heard them say before. Um, and you have to make a lot of decisions about that. And it's also, I mean, I understand exactly what you mean. Cause it's so important. It would be so important to me as well to get Maudie, right. I actually have a little Maudie right here. <laughs> she's, she's, oh with, my God, she's with me. So, so um, Very I'm looking cute. at her while I'm talking. Um, but yeah, it's so important to get it right because she has such a distinctive voice and such poise in regality. Mm. And I don't want it to sound like clumsy. So honestly, I think Max's is easier for me, but that's because of mm. the French background. I, I'm kind of super impressed still because I've listened to that one, obviously. And I was like, oh, well, 
that's a really good Marty voice, huh? <laughs> it's it's not it's nice to hear somebody else do it first because I'm like, oh, this is possible. Okay, it is possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One one piece of advice I would give anybody who is trying an accent, especially if what you're sometimes the hardest thing to record is like a monos, monosyllabic answer. Like so if yes. someone asks a question yeah. like, yeah, and and okay, where does that come in that accent? Just off the cuff. If you're trying very hard and there's a short, very short line, you're trying to ramp up into it. Take that line, write a sentence or a paragraph mm-hmm. around it and get into it. Yep. By the time you hit that line, your accent will be set. Yeah. If you know where you're trying to, That's, where it's trying to sit. It's great advice. Yes. Put it into, pu- put it into the soup and mm-hmm. stir it up a little bit. You're going to come out with, I do. with some, <laughs> some chunks on it. I do that for the smut actually. Cause sometimes uh, a lot in smut dialogue, people are just saying like fuck or yes, or somebody's name, which is monosyllabic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes right after a big chunk of essentially porn prose, right? It's like descriptions, yeah. dudes are getting into it. And then one of the guys has a line of smut dialogue. And it's always like, I was in my narrator prose below, which is a different voice than their character voices. And I do exactly what you said, which is you build a little bit more around it and then just cut it out later. Clip it out. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Editing, man. Mm-hmm editing works wonders but yeah that's that's the only way that's the only way to make it organic as you got to include it in in some meteor text yes and yeah and so we'll we'll get deeper into that when we start talking about um narrating those scenes but i do want to get back to uh, my first question was about taylor swift so as everybody who's listening probably knows the title of this story i don't even want to call it a fic the title of this novel oh thanks <laughs> is because like how how can i how can i well the title of this yeah. novel is did the twin flame bruise paint you blue and that is from the all too well 10 minute volt version yeah of the taylor swift track off of red and it, it's such a beautifully evocative line where it comes in the song but it's not just the line and that's the thing like so much of the story is incorporated and you find it mirrored in the lyrics of the song and you've done that not just with with this book but also you've used so many Taylor Swift lyrics uh, for for many other fix that you've done, not just Cupcake AU, which incorporated so much Taylor Swift, was wonderful. But when we did uh, your episode, we did the the track. It was based on the track Ivy. Yeah. Um. So you've incorporated so much Taylor Swift into your body of work and into kind of the mood of your stories whether the mood is dark or whether the mood is fun like cupcake you know what is your history uh with taylor swift and why is it so evocative for you in terms of writing okay so i i got this you know i got these questions ahead of time and you're i know it's like it's gonna seem really weird but so i it's true that it just it it did happen to fit so for cupcakes i think i talked about previously that we were looking at tweets that Toby had done and Toby Schmitz and Toby Stevens had 
talked about Taylor Swift in a retweet chain or something. They were talking about uh, Christmas music suggestions. And that was really funny to me. And so it ended up that, well, what if Flint, what if Baker Flint listens to, because it's a bakery rom-com, what Mm -hmm. if he listens to Taylor Swift while he bakes? That would be a really interesting thing to try to, you know, incorporate into this character that you would think it would be anathema to his character, right? That he would like uh, pop music. Um, And so I I don't, so it's just sort of shaken out this way that, uh, that Taylor Swift has sort of uh, entered into a couple of different stories in that big way. Um, but I, I don't know, music is just such a big part of my process in general. Um, you know, I have like, I have a dedicated playlist for every verse um, it, and I kind of need to make one before, before I even get into drafting or outlining because I'm, music has always been extremely important to me and I sort of find myself in it in a meditative way and I'm able to craft the vibe of the story and the mood through things that just feel right and it ends up informing the story quite a lot and then once the story has its own set vibes I'm picking more songs I'm always all these playlists are work in progress for me and Mm because I'm using them as a tool to get myself into the mood of the verse. And they're all very specific in that way. Um, The Charlestown AU has one. Breakup has four dedicated ones. I have a main silver flint one. I have uh, the cupcakes one. They're all, they all have their own vibe. But the thing, the thing that I think that, that what happened is that when I was writing cupcakes, I kept thinking about, that I wanted a dark cupcakes. I wanted a dark version of it. And then breakup was like percolating in my mind. And Taylor Swift was also a big part of that story. And so I was listening to the new red um, and the 10 minute version came out and it was just like, all these, all these songs are such a, they're really like a prompt, you know, they're like a jumping off point. And Mm -hmm. I was like, what if, you know, take this ingredient, What if we look at the structure of this breakup song? It's a very, you know, a very long uh, sort of narrative in and of itself here. And what if we tried to use it as part of the bones of something else? Because it it ends up, you know, Breakup AU has, like you said, it has a lot of the song in it. And I I sort of set myself a challenge to do that because that was fun. Um, It's a scavenger hunt a little bit for people who care about that. But the story can also be read entirely without that knowledge. I sort of, so as you, as you know, I, I use song lyrics for all of my titles. They're my mm-hmm. fancy titles, you know, fancy titles and working titles. Breakup AU is the working title for Did the Twin Flame Bruise Paint You Blue? Way too long to say, too many times. Uh, and then uh, for Cupcakes, it's uh, Swedish Devotion, Hit Me Like an Explosion, which is an Adele song. And then all the others have their own fancy titles. But when I'm searching for that, the title song is always an East for this one more than others. Cause it is b- baked into the structure. Like you said, there's always like an Easter egg in there. There's a bonus thesis because not everyone wants to be listening to music all the time. I've discovered that recently that I listen to music constantly, new music, old music, all of it spanning all mm-hmm. genres. And I'm always looking, I'm very greedily looking for things that will fit the verse or help me or illuminate something. I mean, and it's so helpful for me, but not everyone does that. Some people have 
a much smaller pool of songs that they like and that work for them. And they want to listen to the same ones over and over again because they don't want to sort of get their flow broken in that way with something that they haven't engaged with before. But at least for me, I'm just like, I'm always listening to something new. I'm always on my Discover Daily, Discover Weekly. I'm always like finding a new song and then going to the song radio of it and then going to the song radio of it, like all these jumps to find new things. But it's it's a fun, it's such a fun and important decision to like pick the thesis song because it does need to be the core of the story for me. Yeah, It's an important part of my process. So I think I like, what, I guess what I want to see is like music as a whole is extremely important. Taylor Swift, I like her music. I do, but she's definitely not the only thing I listen to. And um, I I do sort of think of her as more of a, of, of prompts, you know, prompts to uh, to sort of like a ju- like a jumping off point. Yeah. And um, and I don't know. I mean, it just sort of like I know it sounds weird, but it's but I. And people are like, well, Jay, you're, you know, you're a Swifty. And I'm like, you know, I really don't think of it that way. Like, they're like, but you literally have a 10 minute all too well story. I'm like, I do. That is true. (laughs) It's just that happened to be, it happened to be something that pinged my brain at that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, cause, cause here's the thing, I'm going to be honest, you know, people have, people have a lot of, uh, it's a pulp, they have polarizing opinions about this artist. And I just wanted to make you know, make it clear that like, I do listen to Taylor Swift and I'm not like ashamed of it, but it's just like, it's, it is one ingredient in a whole pool of different musical ingredients. Um, and I don't even, the, the thing is, it's weird. People, I don't even know if I have a favorite artist. I used to, you know, back in high school, I used to have like four or five favorite artists and I really identified like this, my whole personality. But now I, I sort of rotate favorite songs or favorite albums, but if you put a gun to my head, I don't know if I could tell you who my favorite like artist or band was. It would be, it would just be based on the day when, mm-hmm. when, when those, when people send those ask memes around the tag memes where they're like, Oh, what's your favorite song? I'm like, I just have to shuffle one of the playlists I'm listening to right now. Cause it's going to be out of a thousand of them and they're all going to mean different things. That was a very long answer, but, <laughs> but I was no, looking no, at that's... the question and I was just like, I, I know I was like I know exactly why Kendra's asking this I just was like it's gonna be a weird answer <laughs> that's okay and I know and I totally understand not being able to like name drop a favorite song like mm-hmm. because I don't my you ask me a hundred times well who my favorite artist is I'm gonna say Tori Amos every single time every single time every time she was my coming of age I go back and the first time I felt like a rush of rebellion was Mm -hmm. when my dad took my copy of Little Earthquakes which was her debut album um, came out in 1992 when I was in high school that's how old I am oh gosh um I was in high school in 93 94 was my freshman year but I had just gotten this album um and I had it and my dad came in and he held it up and he said this is inappropriate and he took Uh-oh. it and oh, he no. threw it away and my very first act of rebellion was going out and grabbing another copy of, of it and I was like nope 
nope, not going to happen. My first feeling of, you know, adult type freedom after I got my driver's license was going and uh, driving down to uh, Borders Bookstore. And I went and I got on cassette tape, (laughs) uh, Boys for Pele. And um, so a lot of my, my youth, a lot of my coming of age, a lot of life changes, just everything mm-hmm. has been filtered through Tori Amos. Now, if you ask me my favorite song, it may not be a Tori Amos song. Oh, yeah. But, but hands down, yeah, I, I fully understand that. So getting back into the story um, mm-hmm. and getting back into, you know, what we were just talking about, the fucked up nature of Silver Flint. So you have the distinction of having written one of the most painfully realistic and raw portrayals of a deeply flawed relationship. And uh, just from the bedrock to the roof, the house is cursed. It is. It is cursed. So was there something in particular that you were working through or purging? What happened to bring this upon the world? I love I love that I get the distinction of the most fucked up. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> oh, I really I'm gonna I'm gonna take that to the bank. Thank you. So it's very flattering. And I mean the ending of the show. <laughs> like, yes, of course. Listen, I needed to write like two hundred thousand words. And that's not even as many things as I've written. Like this is just this is just that story. Like I needed to write that to cope and it didn't help. So on a serious note, the original premise of the story of a break, like, okay, I'd written a modern AU that was a rom-com that had a happy ending and that was fun. And it it followed a lot of challenging structure things and also really challenging to like make them happy in a way that's not trite, uh, to be honest with you and make it a bakery rom-com and make them still recognizable because uh, that's Mm -hmm. just, that's just, that's tough. It's tough. Character work is tough. Uh, Translating them to that completely different setting. But for, for the next step, I was like, okay, I want to do something bigger. I want to do, you know, I want to do the two timelines interlocking. It's nonlinear, uh, alternating POV, which I had never done before, but and both at the same time, building around the structure of the song. And then also it should be, it should be in conversation with, with the entire arc, their arc of the show. So the show, the original premise was I'm going to leave them standing in the woods, as it were, but in a modern setting, in a completely different setting with different stakes, with with honestly different problems, but mm-hmm. problems that feel like the same problems from the show. I want to do that and I want it to feel believable and I want to, it to be ambiguous, exactly like I feel when I watch the end of the show. I feel like I'm hanging there in the woods with them, that they're paused and it's like a loop. It's all I can do is just watch the first episode again. And I'm caught in this loop. Like I got, you can't, no one can, is going to be able to see this, but I got my Ouroboros, right? I got the snake is eating itself, right? That's my, one of my black oh, sales amazing. tattoos. Yes. Right. It's because we're trapped in the time loop of black sales and it just keeps repeating in my head. Yeah. And I just couldn't get them out of the woods in my head. And I was like, I know what I'll do. I'm going to take this horrible, cruel, amazing genius of a show. This so painful, this like unassailable tragedy. And I'm going to try to do it uh, in a different way, but it'll exercise that demon from me Mm -hmm. and I will be able to rest. That did not happen. It made me worse, but that, uh, (laughs) 
think a lot of people can relate to that, right? Okay, oh. you know, so some people write a hundred and thirty thousand word novel to cope, and some people make a podcast, and yep. some people learn how to video edit, and we all do different things, but we're all just trying to cope with black sales. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the answer is I was like, what if I do what they did? That'll help. It didn't. I made a different sad story, a different sad story. And by the way, here's the thing. I wanted everyone to be able to choose their own adventure at the end of Breakup AU. And I feel like a lot of people are doing that in the same way that they choose their own adventure at the end of Black Seals in a lot of ways. But like, and I wanted it to be ambiguous. I wanted it to be like there, you could have a lot of different interpretations. But for me, I'm still stranded. I'm still in the gallery. I'm in the mm. gallery now. I'm I'm just hanging out in the gallery with them and I don't know what happens either. So I've just, I just pranked myself is what I did. Yeah. <laughs> there's such a, there's such an um, Orpheus and Eurydice yeah. feeling at the end. And mm-hmm. it's like, please don't turn around. Please don't turn around. Please don't turn around. Well, actually, please don't look in, back. You know? Yeah, in their breakup fight, actually, I'm like, you know, I got to talk about Orpheus and Eurydice. That's that's one of the things where it's like Flint's been painting silver as all of these famous figures. You know, he's been he's been putting him up on a pedestal and painting him as, you know, many, many famous works. And one of the th- people he keeps painting him as is Eurydice. And mm-hmm. so they're talking about it. And then Silver's like, well, you know what? That's exactly what's happening right now. But it's a paradox because turning back in that is doom. But not turning back is okay. also doom. So yes. it's 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 a non you can't win. So essentially, yeah, I wanted to write a story that was believable that two people were singular to each other the way they were in the show, right? Following the footsteps of the show, but also were the worst thing for each other. The both the best and worst thing for each other, you know, those that kind of relationship. And and really that's, you know, just echoes of canon projected onto a modern setting, you know, from the ground yeah. up. That's the blueprint. <laughs> Is that exactly so <laughs> yeah and and you know i can't i honestly like just we were talking you were talking about like writing it and talking about leaving them standing in the woods i literally <laughs> got teary-eyed yeah it's i know and i i can't think about this no, story hard. without breaking down on some level it is so good jay it is oh, so so good no, it's a so curse I've cast upon I, myself too. <laughs> and I, I will say, I will say, because I know you're recording this, but one of the first things that I thought when I read it is, oh my God, I wish I could record this. Yeah. <laughs> and this is one of the things that I, I'll ask you about in a little bit is, mm-hmm. is about, you know, stories that you wish you could record. There's so many that I wish that I could record, but other people have already podfic them and I mm. don't want to you know step on anybody's toes right. and re-record anything it's like that art has already been you know let's look at other things but like there are stories that really resonate with me that mm-hmm. i just again it's like you said there's so much life in it and there's so much that that sings with you yeah for sure that you want to join in on that chorus you know it's and a gift to be allowed to yeah yeah a- it, it really is and I can't tell you how how moved I am by this story. And when you were talking about Taylor Swift, you know, using her songs as jumping off mm-hmm. points, as as prompts, one of the things that I really appreciate, and I mentioned this kind of on a question aspect on, the, on our list, but I just want to reiterate that instead of, because Red is an older album mm-hmm. and it's a more immature 
Taylor. Oh, absolutely. And it is her telling this story as the pure perfect victim. Mm-hmm. Victimized by this other person who is the black to her white. Right. But what I love about this story is that you can't look at it and say, oh, Flint is Taylor and Silver is Jake or, you know, vice versa. You can't mm-hmm. look at it that way because they're both equally contributing to the breakdown of this relationship. That was very and, important. Yeah. And in in life, that's how it happens. Yeah. No one is 100% in the right and no one is 100% in the wrong. That's just not how, and even in the worst relationships, there is one person who is contributing possibly, you know, the bulk of it, but nobody is, is going in completely unflawed. Everyone contributes. A bad relationship is bad because there are two imperfect people involved in it. It takes, it definitely takes two to tango for sure. Um, That was why the alternating POV was so important is because otherwise it would be tempting for the audience to be in the corner of our main POV. And I just, uh, I just, I knew that as challenging as it was going to be to manage two timelines and two POVs and keep track of that, it had to happen for it to be the story that I wanted to tell. And uh, with this song, with All Too Well 10 Minutes, as well as other songs, sometimes what happens with me, as what you were saying about what lyrics go with which people, right? Who is who? Often what happens with me is a weird alternating effect anyway, where the POV of the song keeps shifting based on Mm -hmm. how I want to use it. And it wouldn't make sense if you were to sit down and try to write like a a, a textual analysis of it, but it makes sense enough for me to take those pieces. So if if I were to sit down and sort of highlight out the lyrics that I used, uh, even though it's supposed to be all from one POV, right? It would not be in the story. There are lines that are flints and there are lines that are silvers and they're different than in the original because again, it was just like a, an ingredient in the cake that I was making and I took it and used it the way I needed to. So it'll just shift along. And now it's, since you've read the story and you've also heard the song, right? You could probably pick it out, but um, mm-hmm. that's sort of how that that works for me. I, I've been, re- I recently, so Avalanche, right? Which which uh, there's the cover of Avalanche in Black Seals, right? At yeah. The, it, uh, two nine, Season two. Of two nine. Yeah. yeah. After Miranda dies. Um, yes. They play, uh, I believe they rec- Nick Cave recorded it specifically for the show. Is a cover, oh, I didn't know that. Cover of Leonard Cohen. And so I've been listening to Avalanche a lot for a different verse because I, uh, I just, it sort of, somebody put it back onto my radar and I was like, oh, this song is deeply complex. It's got a bunch of different POVs. I think I'm going to be able to use that for a verse. But I don't think it's at all what the song actually is trying to say in a vacuum is what I guess what I'm trying to say. So like, I know exactly what you what you mean about that, because there's a history to the song in isolation. You know, it has its own baggage. Uh, it has Taylor Swift's lived experience in her own. She's making her own creative product. And I sort of, I don't really think about any of that. The song is English major again. The song is the text. Mm -hmm. It is the text and it is the way it sounds. Anything else doesn't matter to me in the process, right? And that's why I'm like, when people are like, oh, what what about this about Taylor Swift? I'm like, yeah, I don't know anything about that. They're like, well, I thought you liked her. I'm like, I like this song. (laughs) I don't know anything about that. So like, it took me a minute to be like, oh, wait. Oh, that's, that's the person. Like the Taylor and Jake thing. I'm like, Oh, okay. Cause there's, oh, it's, cause it's written about like, 
like a real guy. But I just, I don't know. I just see like, okay, two very, I'm trying to, I was like, okay, how can this be two extremely flawed men? Um, how can it be my guys? How can they fit into this? Sometimes it maps over, sometimes it doesn't. And I will pick and choose which parts of the song I want. Oh, you you said because they're deeply flawed. There's another question that talks about that. And I did want to talk about it. Um, yeah, from the start, it was important. From their very first meeting, it was important to know the know the reasons that they were going to talk past each other. Because in canon, mm-hmm. in canon, they can't seem to get on the same page. It seems like they see each other better than anyone else does, which they mm-hmm. do, but they also don't. And that type of relationship is so meaty is so close to how human beings interact where you can get somebody on a level where you feel like you're in their brain on some things and then it feels like you're speaking a completely different language than them like they'll suddenly reveal something about themselves and it's like oh oh people have multitudes they're very complex mm-hmm. the way that silver and flint are written in black sales is some of the most human characters i've ever seen where that's why they can stand up to this type of extrapolation is that they have it in them to move in those ways because anyone who's read the story knows that these guys go through an arc in breakup au that they end up being almost um, unrecognizable in some ways to their canon counterparts but at the point at that point they've gone through it organically in the story yeah Um, and it makes sense there, I mean, just the decision to make Silver cope with drug use and alcohol. I don't think that Canon Silver has that relationship with those things because he says in the show that he doesn't want to take opium because he's afraid of the things he'll say. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big sticking point when I was first concepting this one. I wanted him to be an actor and I wanted him to be a party boy and I wanted this to be a big part of it, a big ingredient. And I was like, is that Silver? How is this Silver? In what way? Well, let's look at a different Silver. Let's look at a modern version. And his his hangups are going to be translated into a different way. So Breakup Silver is not canon Silver, but he's still recognizable. Um, Very much so. Yeah. And and honestly, even when you're writing canon, canon verse, even when you're dedicatedly deep in there, I think we've talked about this before. The moment you start writing a story, you're doing transformation and speculation because the very fact that it's a TV show. We, we don't know what is going on in their heads. We need to make what's going on in their heads a thing in writing if they're the POV. Mm. That, that's simply a thing we will never know. And we are always extrapolating. And so it's just about which key parts of their characters have to stay hard and immovable part of them. But sometimes also, as you write it and they go through a different arc, you get a Flint who... I look at him and I go, I think Cannon Flint would drop kick this motherfucker at this point based on a thing he just did. Um, and it's it's the background check. <laughs> like break up AU Flint talking to his cop friend. Yes. About a background check is something that I think that Cannon Flint would absolutely never do. But at the point that that, that happens, because Again, I agonize about these decisions. I'm like, oh, I d- I've never known anything about the characters ever. They're way too far away from themselves now. And I have to like work through it. But it's like, no, this is a different guy now. He's my guy. Um, he started out as, as over here. But I, I mean, as you know, I wrote, you know, I wrote Breakup Flint a whole new backstory. I made him siblings with Anne. I gave them a unique relationship. Uh, the Hamiltons and Maudie do not feature in this. So the Hamiltons are not Breakup AU Flint's background. He had to have a different one. 
he had to have a reason that he would be flinty without mm-hmm. that. Right. I didn't yeah. want to do it like a canon map over because I felt like it would just be retreading the show in a way that everybody's seen the show. It's already been done beautifully. And I was like, well, at this point we're, we're do- basically doing fan fiction and original fiction at the same time, because I just want to do apparently the hardest thing possible. Yeah. I don't know, but that, that was important to me. So I, I had to go to, to the drawing board before I could move forward on things about knowing who Flint was in this story. I had to build him a new backstory that made sense for how I was going to have him be, which was a lot of work. And most of it didn't get into the story. It's just something I needed to know. Like, I also know everything that happened to Silver in his past, but no one was ever going to get to know that. I just needed to be able to write his responses correctly. Um, Yeah. 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 So I will say that Mm -hmm. your, your approach to it, extrapolating and mapping over some of canon, but also combining it with original fiction and story structure is also what made it so unique, uniquely painful. I will say (laughs) Yeah. Because you're not rehashing old hurts. You're not opening old wounds. These are fresh now. Mm-hmm. And they're alongside the old ones. Yeah. And so we have new damage that yeah, we are we inflicting. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I did it to myself too. I'm not like Thank a you. Cat. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah. And you know, and it, it's it is beautiful and in a way. Well, you're talking about how, you know, Flint does not have the same history with the Hamiltons and they're taken out of the historical context of canon Mm -hmm. and talking about specifically that background check, because, you know, canon era Flint was so focused on no, no shame, Mm -hmm. but he hasn't had the same things happen to him in his life. And that's the thing. People get so hung up on extrapolating and having to make every single plot detail exactly the same or every character backstory exactly the same but the thing is we are a product of we have a base personality you know i look at my children from as far back as i can remember seeing personality traits they haven't changed much in terms of who they are at their core. You have this spirit of personality that is born with you. That doesn't change. But what does change is your reactions to the world and how the world shapes you and how your history shapes you and how what calluses we build up around ourselves and that can change very much depending on uh, what you go through. And so mm-hmm. you can take these characters and you can have that that same flame of personality um, that you do see in the core of Black Sails. And you can transfer that and you mm-hmm. can change those calluses. You can change the roughness, the softness, all of this by changing the backstory. And still, if you are talented enough and if you are good enough at picking up on those nuances of character, you can translate it and it still maintains that core of truth. You still are, you look at that, that's flint, that's silver. And you do that extremely well. The reason that I, that I know you do it extremely well is because <laughs> I would not be so emotionally devastated if you didn't do it so well. 
I, I wanted it care. to be a real, rela- you know, I wanted it to feel like a real relationship too. Like it really does. Mm-hmm. It really does. And what helps um, you get a bunch of really talented fic writers looking at all, looking at this from a bunch of angles, but what really helps is you have the source material of like incredible writing, mm-hmm. incredible, incredible story. Uh, an incredible ensemble where everybody plays off of each other really well. Yeah. Themes that that touch you like just on a fundamental level. But at the same time, also on top of that, these incredible nuanced performances, specifically mm-hmm. when you're talking about the relationship between Silver and Flint, the, the interplay, the emotional interplay on Luke and Toby's faces is something that you can write novels on. Oh, Absolutely. And none of it makes its way into dialogue, but it is an entirely separate story. Mm-hmm. And it is the reason people will want, will write silver Flint fic until they drop dead. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and there's endless possibilities and none of it is ever going to get old. I I'm just, I'd yeah. like to say that their, their face, I agree. I like to say that their faces are having a different conversation. Their eyes are having a completely different conversation than, than what they're actually, yes. what's actually Abs- making it out. Absolutely. And if you like four layers removed from good communication. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. And you know what, if you, if you're watching the show and you're only listening to the dialogue, you're only getting half of the story. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, that is really, really important. I understand if you want to stick to canon and you're going to be like, I'm going to trust the writers and I'm not going to look at anything else. Feed me. I'm a baby bird, you know? However, that's not all we're given. And mm. that's never all we're, we're given when you have actors of that caliber oh, yeah. who have been given the leeway to say, do whatever you want with your faces because we're allowing this to to uh, exist in subtext, mm-hmm. which is, you know, which if you want canon, that's canon from Steinberg. We are allowing this to live in subtext. Right. And it's a thing of beauty and it it works so well in you know everything that i've that i've seen from you uh writing wise and in so many of the stories that we featured Mm -hmm. um just absolutely fantastic now looking at the relationship in twin flame was there a point where there was a decision that could have saved the relationship and then in the opposite was there a death knell did you what what would you say was their the final nail that kind of did them in that's a really that's an interesting question because so from the ground up i wanted it to feel like something was so it's it's alternating pov but it's also not written linearly we start out with their reunion after they've broken up that's the first part and then we go backwards And the first meeting, I wanted it to be extremely important that you already know how it's going to end. So we start in Media's Res, which I like better. I find it very compelling. It's a very good hook. Um, Mm -hmm. It's kind of kind of what we want to see, at least for me, is uh, it wouldn't have worked as well in chronological order. Um, You needed to get those echoes between the sections where you know what's coming. The train is coming, but you hope the whole time it won't. But in their first meeting... And then in the first few subsequent dates, I needed to make it clear that the problems were always there, Mm. that the problems and the chemistry were both always there. And it wasn't something that started out perfect and then 
soured. It was something that was, and something I always returned to when I was thinking about what's the thesis of the story? What, what is it about? And it's about those relationships um, that we've either had or all seen people go through where if there is a foundation of sand, right? There mm. is a nothing foundation where two people don't really know each other and they escalate so fast. They, it's like that flash in the pan intensity, right? Of a rocket ship, you know, of intimacy and commitment and too much, too much never is going to have sustainability. And I wanted to follow the timeline of the show in that way, which is so short, right? It's like a year of actual events. Uh, and, and Breakup AU doesn't actually span a very long time. They date for maybe four or five months, break up or broken up for 11 and then meet up again. And then the, the what I call the post timeline, the post breakup timeline happens within a few weeks, three or four weeks, not very long at all. Um, and so that's why it's a winter story because it's set in winter on both sides. It's a cold story, right? It's a cold, hard breakup story. Um, so I wanted it to, so when you ask, it's like, was there a point? And I did my damnedest to make it where you can't find, can't find one because I look at canon that way. I try. And you know, the one of the first things I tried to write when I first got into this fandom was a fix it fic. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it in a way that satisfied me. I couldn't find a way to start from the end of the events of season four and speculate into something that I didn't find to be disrespectful because because I love tragedies and it is such a good one. And it is, I call it unassailable because the writing is woven in such a way as the characters were always going to make those decisions and you see them making them. But if they made a different one, if they stopped and talked to each other, it wouldn't be them because they're so consistently written. And so yeah. I was like, I'm going to put these two very complicated and damaged men in a room together in a different context and have them go through the same dance, essentially, which was that they're talking at cross purposes. They don't tell each other the truth. They both want very different things and think that the other one wants the same thing. And that for Flint, especially that he's in love. And so that means that everything's going to just smooth out. That's the only thing that matters. And for Silver, that is simply not how he thinks about it. And it's like suffocating. So they, they start out from the beginning and Silver doesn't want to give his whole self, he wants to give the best version of himself. So he starts the relationship on his side, being someone who is trying to please Flint. He's tailoring someone to him in this story. And Flint starts out asking so many things, things that even with like pretty well-adjusted people would be intense. Like, hey, do you want to come to my family Christmas? I know it's only been like two months uh, or like how he just wholesale moves in and neither of them talk about it or mm -hmm. hey what you think you should be like my artistic muse like you think I should totally like the thing that's in, most important to me in the world my creative drive and like what motivates me to make my livelihood what if you were like that what if I don't draw my other subject anymore what if overnight I just only draw silver what if I only paint silver so like they both do this like they both make a lot of mistakes. And I wanted it to be clear from the beginning that Flint is going too fast and Silver is trying to keep up, but won't explain that he's uncomfortable. And that's going to be like, that's one of the, the sort of cruxes of the problem. And then also like 
the what we see in canon, which is the different philosophies on story and past and how Flint wants to tell him everything. He wants to share all of himself because that's how he shows love and trust. And so that's not a thing Silver can do because it's so it would be so damaging that it would just break him. And Flint sees that as a sign that he's not it's not reciprocated. Right. Mm -hmm. You won't tell me these things. It's not reciprocated. And I wanted to transfer that over to the story in that way, because that 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 drives me crazy. That drives me crazy in canon is that I can see how they both think that they are communicating clearly and that they're saying what they want, but they're actually not. Um, And they they do love each other, but it's not enough. Right. It matters. It matters, but it's not enough. And they just keep making the same mistakes uh, where they assume what the other person wants is the same thing that they want. And they keep assuming and like overriding Flint overrides a lot in this one. And then they sort of switch places. Right. I wanted to do this thing where they have that blurring effect in Canon, where they start to become more and more like each other. I wanted that to happen here too, where we start out where we're angrier at one of them. And then we flip and Flint started out as the more well-adjusted seeming one and silver was more of the mess. And then I wanted it to be the opposite at the end. So what you said about is there a point i mean from the ground up i designed it to be where i couldn't untangle it mm-hmm. um, because a, a, a point that's really cruel that i loved but was cruel is that in chapter seven we get to the sex party in the post timeline and flint has come to say that you know he accepts silver and he accepts that these are the things that he likes and he should have never been so judgmental and sanctimonious about it but It doesn't matter at that point. It doesn't even matter that Flint's like, hey, you're right. I have this kink. I have a cuckolding kink. I'm ready to talk about it. It doesn't matter. It's too late because so many other problems had had cropped up Mm -hmm. while he was dealing with working through that. Because I remember writing it and I was like, oh, man, because Flint was doing things. The little Flint on my shoulder was doing things that I didn't expect him to do. He was growing in ways I didn't expect him to. And I was like, oh, he's cool with this now. He's just reached a moment. He talked to Vane in the gym and he's been thinking about it and I'm, he's ready to accept that. And I was like, oh no, but is that going to fix them? And then I go, it's not. It's not mm-hmm. because at this point, Silver cannot accept. He can't accept that he would be accepted. It's too late. They've hurt yeah. each other in such horrible ways already. They've had these horrible fights. Um, and then it becomes so clear because we get to that point later in the other chapters that they just say the nastiest things to each other. And they're the worst and best things for each other. And no, I, I, Kendra, I really can't figure out a point where they could have made a decision other than the ones they did. Cause I followed mm-hmm. it so closely. I wanted, I was, obs- I mean, I was obsessed. This, this store was my life for 15 months. You know, I, I, I just breathed it. I just thought mm-hmm. about it. Everyone around me all the time. All I could talk about was breakup at you. I was not, I didn't happen to be employed at that time. It was just everything. 15 months of breakup and, yeah. and then that's how the, that's how the novel got made because I, I had enough time to dedicate to just that it, yeah it, it, you, you almost have to you have to if you're going to make something like that you have to have yeah you have to be obsessed with it you have to think about it every single waking moment you're always yeah. thinking about it you're always making notes so yeah I can't imagine doing anything like that without being fully completely immersed yeah. in it um mm-hmm. just mentally yeah, just mentally sure. and one of the things you said about um, Silver not being able to to accept 
that Flint accepts him mm-hmm. the way that he is. Yeah. Um, and it goes back to uh, the conversation that I had with Mary. So we were talking about just Eleanor's issues and how much of that is not being able to live up to the expectations of her father and just having this self-loathing that I think Silver very much has. Oh, yeah. Uh, in it, I see a lot. Th- there are so many mirrors and parallels to characters in Black Sails. And it's not just one, one v one. It is mm-hmm. that you see it reflected across the board. For sure. And one of the things that I talked about and that Mary talked about was the idea of having so much self-loathing that if someone expressed love or care for you, that you're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Yep. You can't, you can't love me. You can't accept me because yep. I can't. Yeah. And if, and if I can't, then I can't accept you. Mm. If you love me, then what is wrong with you? Yep. It's, and that is what I saw yeah. in this. Yeah. And that is what mm-hmm. this <laughs> took me to the goddamn cleaners. <laughs> I, oh my gosh, yeah, because I have so much deep, trauma. Deep yeah. Mm-hmm. I have so much trauma from my past, from my childhood that I have gone to therapy. I have dealt with on certain levels. It never goes away. No, and it just brought all that to the surface, mm. and it's it just it's so cathartic in a way, and it's like, and I, I've said this about many things in many fix in the fandom, and I think it's something that draws me to a certain story, is that writers who can really do this, um, it's like it's like pushing on a bruise, it yeah. hurts, but in an exquisite way. Mm-hmm. And in in a way, when I was writing a lot of poetry, and I got to a point when I was writing poetry, going through things, I I hit a wall and I stopped, mm. um, because it's so you you're so you have to be so honest, and I got to a point where I couldn't I couldn't be honest anymore, and put it out on paper for anybody to see. Because that, and but that is every single piece that I wrote during that time mm. was pushing on that bruise. Yeah. And it was like an emotional bloodletting. And it, it just is agonizing coming out, but it's once you're done, mm. it's like giving, it's like giving birth. Like you feel like you're draining the wound, you know? Yeah. You, you literally at that point, you really like, okay. You think about generations of women who have died doing this. And you're just like, "Uh, this is going to kill me. And then the euphoria afterwards. And it's kind of, that's kind of how writing through that trauma is. And it's kind of how reading that, reading your work (laughs) filtered through my own trauma felt Mm. is like, I may not make it out of this. And in fact, there were times I put it down and I said, I'm not, I can't. And I went back, but it is just so cathartic. And I think, I think if we didn't have art like that in the world, if we didn't have something that forces us through that trauma, just cleanses us in a way that is just, it burns you down. It's like purifying fire. Yeah. That I don't think that we could exist as a society 
everybody has their own separate way of getting to that point for us. Mm-hmm. It's fan fiction. For right. you, it's writing. For, for me, it is an amalgamation of many things. But we all have to have that point mm-hmm. where where you squeeze and all of that comes out. Yeah, and I, I just I, uh, I agree. I mean, I I agree. Uh, good art that you can see yourself reflected in is so vital to figuring out who you are and seeing yourself and figuring out the things you hate about yourself if that is your damage and and being able to love yourself more. Like if you see a character who's like you and you love them, um, you know that's therapeutic because you can love yourself more because you see that oh well in this over here I'm able to appreciate these qualities. And then it's almost unavoidable that, well, I have these qualities too. Um, and you can sort of, like you said, unpick that, drain the wound for sure. Absolutely. My, my background, actually, I think we've talked about before. I, I started writing poetry. Poetry was my, my bread and butter for a really long time. And you're absolutely right. It's very raw. It's, uh, it's very yourself. You, there, are, there are no barriers. Um, yeah. You don't get to pretend that it's not just like your soul on the page. I think that's why I like the pre-made characters so much better and that I like fiction better for that because getting to handle it through that lens is safer. Getting to sort of take a vacation into like being silver or flint is, uh, is fun. It feels like a power fantasy, right? I get to do things with them that I wouldn't get to do per se. I get to take them through horrible things as well that, that aren't my own experience, but that can also be cathartic because I feel like once you take someone to, you, you take a character to rock bottom like that, you kind of know that you could survive it. I don't know. It's, it is it is catharsis. Writing, because parts of me, of course, are always going to end up when I'm writing. I don't even do it on purpose sometimes. I'll think that I'm writing something and I'll think that I know what the thesis is. And it's just actually about grief or, you know, that's what it turns out to be about. And I didn't start with that, but whatever I'm bringing to it, right, is that... But I like what you said about everyone is getting something different from the, the story, the fit, the different fix that they're reading, because it's true with anything, with any piece of art, like whoever made it, we put it out there and then I'm done my part. I sort of am removed from the process at that point. And now it belongs to everyone else. Mm-hmm. I, I, I made the story. I spent my time with it. You know, I like a little child, right. I crafted it up and um, I put everything I could into it. I made it the best that I could. And I have my own ideas about what it means, but not everyone is going to get exactly that because they're not me. They're going to pull a lot of different things out of it. Like you said, they're putting it through the lens of their own experience. And that's so important because it helps actually it. People will get in the comments and say, this is literally something that happened to me. I don't know how you wrote that. And I go, well, it's because I just tried to write them like human beings. Right. And I yeah. watched a lot of movies and I read a lot of stuff and I watched the show a lot. And I just wrote two men with these specific damages and motivations who were in love. And that's, that's a very universal human experience. Many people have had a relationship where it was so intense. It felt like it was going to burn them down to embers and they're never going to forget it. But it also was destructive. It's like a beautiful, destructive thing. Um, and mm-hmm. they sort of dream about it, right? But the thing is, the sustainability is kind of boring, right? For any of us in long-term relationships, it's like day-to-day is not the intense dramatization of the fiction. 
That's the yeah. fiction is supposed to be fun and interesting. <clears throat> I never want my real life to look like that. If my real life ever starts to look anything like what I did to those boys this is a big old red flag. And we need to go figure some stuff out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, you know what I'm yeah. saying though? It's oh like, yeah. It's not a blueprint for anything healthy. It is how deeply toxic can we make this and still make it believable that they don't just leave. And I think a lot of people resonate with that because a lot of people have been in those relationships where they're like, I love this person so much that I can't stand it, but also I hate them. And yeah. those two things are not opposites. They are very related. They are yeah. not, love and hate are very close cousins and they're on the same little thin line. Apathy is yep. the thing that's the opposite, right? Indifference. Once you're indifferent, it's like you've healed. Your wound is healed. But if you still hate them, they still have power over you. Um, exactly. So yeah. you know, I, I love that you said that because I love hearing people. I've had a couple of people tell me, hey, this like hit me in a deep place. What is wrong with you? And I'm like, that's the greatest compliment that you could give me because it means that I managed to make them look like real people, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and I, I'm glad to hear that it helps as a cathartic experience because Kendra, there are people who will refuse to read. The, they, they, they read the tags and they go, no, I don't think so. That's, you know, that's fine. It's just like, that doesn't work for everyone. Right. Not everyone wants to go through it like that. Like, because I don't really pull in my, pull my punches. <laughs> I yeah. just do. I just need the story to be the best it can be. And it's a breakup story. So yeah, it had there, to hurt. <laughs> there are, there are some that, that I look at that, you know, I'm like, you know what? Not right now. Yeah. But then there are, there are writers that you trust. Okay. So I've read a lot of your work. I trust you. I trust you as a writer. And I knew that this was, this was gonna suck (laughs) just drastically, but I trusted you that, that the journey would, would be worth it. Yeah. And I, and it, it was, the journey is worth the pain. Mm, I'm Um, so glad. And, but it is a very real thing. Like you see this mirrored in so much of, of literature and these, these toxic, overly passionate relationships Mm -hmm. where that fine line between love and hate is just Mm -hmm. razor, razor thin, you know, going back to Toby's body of work i don't know if you've watched uh his production of private lives that he did with anna chancellor and it's a it's a play that i have a long relationship with this play even before i knew that he had done it it's by noel coward and when i was working at palm beach drama works we did a production of this that was fraught Mm. (laughs) It, it was just an extraordinary parallel between what was happening on stage and what was happening backstage. It mirrored it so incredibly. It was like, if if people knew half the drama, they would enjoy this play so much more, even though it was incredible. <laughs> but the, the relationship in, in the play is so passionate. And it, it's a comedy. So, you know, you it's a safe way to explore that dynamic mm-hmm. because it is, it is, just wickedly funny mm-hmm. but it, but it's also if played well mm-hmm. and you find those notes of earnestness in the performance it can also be incredibly sad 
Yeah. Because it's this, these two people who have extreme passionate love for each other, but it's not enough. No. They cannot be together because they will burn each other down to the core. Yeah. And I see that parallel and I see that parallel with Twin Flame. Yeah. But it's taken that comedy out and it's mm. like, okay, this is not a comedy of errors. This is not an old coward. This is real life. And in real life, uh, it, it's not funny and they're not, they're not pulling laughs. They're hurting no, each other deeply. They're hurting each other deeply. And the type of I, shit that you, you don't even understand how you could come back from, right? That there's no way they would ever speak to each other again, but it's an, yeah. addic- it's like an addiction. Like you can't let it go. Right. Like, well, will anything ever be as good as that? It felt it's so much, um, that type of thing. Yeah. So there, there's a line from a movie, um, like a kind of a shitty like a uh, teen movie where it's like have you ever tried you know being in love but without the madly part and the other character goes what's the fun in that and that's sort of yeah sort of what, it, what like the 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 big problem with with these two is that they don't know how to be normal uh with each other and they don't know how to be normal in canon but i've removed the factors from canon that would give them a little more leeway right like Mm-hmm. the outside external pressures and just made them a little bit more fucked up emotionally right and yeah. just made their i'm sure we've all met someone who their traumas or demons or personality traits just butt heads with ours in the worst way like you can see the ways in which the traumas ping each other horribly and you can like get along like a house on fire in some ways but you hit that nitty-gritty point where you're not just talking about surface level stuff anymore. You're not just having fun dates and, you know, the, the boys are, uh, they're trying to talk about their feelings and like real stuff and like how they think about BDSM and disability and drugs. And it, uh, does not match up at all. No. Uh, yeah. It's like these two people don't know each other and yet they have embarked upon this. If you hear your friend do what these two are doing, you, you just, you go, oh god yeah like you can imagine the friend groups in the silver implant friend groups being like what is happening because for silver he's never been in a serious relationship ever that they know of he does not date he does casual stuff just exclusively and for flint he's never moved that fast he's like had maybe one serious boyfriend ever and it probably took him a really long time to even tell anyone about it and it's like within three months we got this we got him bringing him to the farm and like introduce the showing him his childhood bedroom and it's like both of these guys are acting completely outside of their normal behavior patterns when it comes to relationships and their friends are like what are you doing you know yeah contingency plans for that it's like oh no he's just living with me now also i have a whole showcase coming up like literally my livelihood uh and it's like you know, there might be some problems with that, but it's moving so fast that you don't have time to think about that until, you know, it hits the hard wall, right? Which yeah, which I have, it, been, I have them. Yeah, and and that's the thing is like when you're running so uh, such a fever pitch, like when there is so much passion involved, the inevitable end of it is not petering out. It's not the car running out of gas. No. It is literally running into a bridge abutment. Mm-hmm and Mm -hmm. massive explosions and that you talked about bringing out a cheesy line from a teen film my thought went to a line from cocktail which is like 
really cheesy 80s Tom Cruise <laughs> flick. And it's a horrible, a horrible end to one of his many relationships in that film. And, you know, she's like, I don't want it to end like this. I don't want it to end badly. He says, everything ends badly. Otherwise, it wouldn't end. And in a way, for certain people, that's how it is. You know, there's the conscious uncoupling that, you know, some people manage to to do and still like one of the biggest green flags are people who are still friends with their exes that but these are not green flag people these are no. red flags yeah because and if so- you're friends with your ex it ended at a point where you both acknowledged way before the explosion and the toxicity that that yep. oh we're not going to work which i think is healthy if you can yeah like you know what this isn't going to work we should just go our separate ways i think that people should be more capable of that but um when it feels that intense you just don't want to let it go. Right. Yeah. You, it, it, you can't, it's a, I wanted, I wanted it to be where you couldn't really blame either of them. Like, like I, you know, you wonder, well, would I do something different? Like, I don't know. Um, obviously they have their own specific damages, but in the show, I think the show does a really good job of putting you in everybody's shoes and like from their point of view, they're making the right decisions. And that's why it's so compelling. And it's so like hard to, to un- unpick the tangled web of yeah. bad decisions because you're like max or eleanor or flint or silver everyone's doing exactly what their character would do like uh, a lot of people talk about how jack rackham goes back to not change his name he wants he's going to sign the pardon so he doesn't have to change his name no other character would have found that to be important enough but jack did and it's a plot point right uh, i i love that character as fate thing yeah. where you you can't really make them do something different because it's not them it wouldn't be them anymore exactly um, yeah so we've talked pretty extensively about uh twin flame and story structure and character motivations and and yeah. all of that that went into it um let's focus a little bit on the technical aspects of your narration because as as much as i i love talking about story the part that i can really really relate to in terms of being kind of parallel is the technical aspects of narration and stuff like that um obviously i'm not the writer that you are but tell me a little bit about your history of narration and getting into pod ficking and uh a little bit about um your journey in that way so I think I mentioned earlier, I always have been a person who likes making, like, likes mimicking accents and voices. And, you know, uh, you hear an announcer on the radio or something, and I'm like, oh, can I make that sound? Or I'll very often audibly do the guitar parts as, mm-hmm. like, singing the lyrics. But then the rest of the song, I also sing as, like, a an imitation sort of thing. And so that's always been something that I've done, but I, and I I was also the kid who wanted to read, wanted to read the passage out loud, right. That no one had to call on me and make me read whatever, uh, as you know, cause we would take turns, uh, reading the book or something of the chapter and like to kill a mockingbird. Um, and I'm like, no, I want to go every time because I know how this is supposed to be read. Same. <laughs> yeah. So, so I've always been doing that. I, I just didn't consider, I, I, I just never had anyone who sort of encouraged me in that way, or, or I didn't consider that something that I could be good at. And so honestly, what happened was I wrote, I wrote the silver backstory 
in, I think it was 2021. And that story is, it's a lot more historical fiction, original historical fiction, because I was writing Silver pre-canon almost entirely. It didn't really, like it was a whole new story. And so I wanted my spouse who only does audiobooks. I thought that would be something he'd be interested in, right? He might not be interested in a lot of the other stuff, but this one was, it wasn't Silver Flinty. It was just, it was just a period piece. It was just me trying to get a handle on Silver. And I, I thought it was pretty approachable from that perspective. So I thought, okay, well, I'll record it because he doesn't focus on fiction that way. His reading fiction sort of, uh, you know, focus issues happen. So like audiobooks are, he does them exclusively. And so I was like, cool, I'll make an audiobook so that he can, so that this can be accessible. So it started out mm-hmm. as an accessibility thing. Um, and then I, I was really good at it. And that, um, yeah, I, I honestly didn't expect to be, did not expect to have as much fun as I did. Um, and I didn't know people were going to like it that much. I, I just thought of it as something I was doing because, because no one else was going to read it. Right. Mm-hmm. It just needed to be in a format that was accessible. <clears throat> and it's funny because my spouse did not end up, he just, it's just not his thing. Right. He's just not, he just doesn't read my stuff and that's fine. He supports me in other ways. He's like my best soundboard, but uh, he didn't end up listening to it, but a lot of other people did. And uh, I discovered through that, that I really liked, like it was a whole different way of engaging with the story. You get a secret, secret version of the story that you get to sort of make if it's your own or if it's somebody else's, you get to enter it into that way and sort of commune with it, like we said earlier. And so I, I from that point, I did a few of my, more of my own and was trying out different things. And then I recorded uh, another Troy. I, I recorded a composite unity and the salt in the sea. And oh my gosh, that was because I loved that story so much. And I just, I needed to record it. And, and I don't know if you feel this way, but it can be like, like, you know, you get to record another chapter of a thing. It's like a friend waiting for you because at that point, at that time I was working at night shift at a bakery and um, I would get home and uh, I'd be like, take a bath and sort of decompress and then the best time to record here is after midnight because um we have a lot of road noise where Mm -hmm. because I don't have any kind of dedicated soundproofing area we just don't have any space for that there's nowhere I've thought about it before but there's there's nowhere I could sort of do that so I just have to alter the space as much as possible and sort of wait for good times to record uh for me it's usually in the middle of the night uh after midnight and when the cats have been fed and they're not meowing uh, and stuff like that. And I like, I'll turn off all the air purifiers, all the things, yep. everything. Cause my mic, it's a mic from when I was streaming, when I was doing streaming and it's a really nice mic, but it also picks up everything. And my noise yep. gate tends to not want to cut those things out. So uh, yeah, it, it just sort of happened organically. Um, and I had, I had asked to record a composite unity because I just wanted to see if I could. I just did the first chapter and I sent it uh, to a 12 who wrote that. And, and they were like, holy shit, Jay, this is really good. And honestly, that's like the first time anybody had said that, right? Like, I didn't know. I didn't know it was good. I just thought it was, I just, I was just doing it. I had no idea because I'd literally never done it before. So I just fell into it. And I think it's just because I love Silver Flint so much that it comes 
it, it came so easily in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. now I've sort of been, you know, after I got, got into it, I think about, I've like studied it in a craft perspective and like listen to other people do it and see what I think about that and what techniques I like. But when I first started, it was just like throwing spaghetti at the wall, you know? Yeah. Um, it was really casual. It was just, it, it was literally just for accessibility. It was not because I was thinking of it as a performance, but, but I got really into it. And um, acting is never something that I have done. I've always had too much anxiety about it, but voice acting is perfect because no one can see me. Yep. And I can only be a voice on the airwaves. It's perfect. I did not know it was going to be that perfect, but it's, it, I love it so much. When you're a creative and you can move from like, you're in writing mode, but then you need a break. Your brain will do a different creative thing. Like sometimes you can make visual art, which I've done before, but pod picking, I would have this pattern where I'd publish a chapter of something or a story, and then I would do a pod fic for someone. And that sort of break that alternating helped my brain sort of take it, even though I was always working on something, my brain could take time to do a different, uh, sort of different creative brain, um, if that makes sense. In the same Mm -hmm. way that some people like who do a lot of visual art, but also write alternate um, because it uses a different part of your creative brain or people who make music and also write and and various things. Mostly when you talk to creatives, they, they have more than one thing going on. And I think that's helpful. Um, yeah. And so, and then I told you earlier that I just, um, I wanted to make a lot of friends when I first entered this fandom because I'd never really been big into fandom engagement. I was kind of shy about it, but Black Seals kind of demands that you not weather it alone. So yeah. I was really forced to reach out to people in a way that I just, I didn't do previously to this show. And uh, I ended up, I've made a lot of friends and I, I know a lot of people and um yeah so I just I'll read I'll read stories from someone I know and I'll be like hey hey can I record your thing (laughs) you know like it because I I was like no no I need to record your thing (laughs) um because I I need to it's a deep need uh yeah something something must happen here with that but you know um yeah it was it was it just yeah, it was really organic and um and I love it. I'm so glad that I'm doing it. It's so it's such a perfect fit, but um it's not something that I would have thought of sort of on my own. I needed to uh it needed to be <laughs> sort of an accident. <laughs> not an accident, you know, but I found something. You know, I found something I didn't know I was that I was missing. Uh, sometimes you don't know that you that there's something that you're not able to, there's a way you're not able to express yourself that you don't even know that you're missing it. And, mm-hmm. then, and then it just falls into your lap in that way. Um, yeah. And especially the smut, like what, well, this is so funny <laughs> because smut is now a thing that I'm sort of known for as far as doing those audio adaptations. And when I did the silver backstory, there's, there's a couple of spicy moments in it, but it's not, it's not explicit. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm worried about if I can make this work. But it turns out I'm really good. (laughs) I didn't know. It's like, it's great. I'm so happy. It's fun to find a thing that you love. And that I don't know that you love doing. I know. I just like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I totally, I totally understand. And 
And it's that driving force that like you have to record something mm-hmm. like there's something that hits you that I and I have to tell you how long I chased down and kind of pursued like I was like I was courting the story uh, <laughs> in in terms of um, James uh, Lupus Maris. Yeah, um, that story. I started begging <laughs> I'm like, you have to trust me on this. Like, I'm going to make, I, I want to make a podcast. And I know it's not just a pod fic. Like, I want to focus on on the author and as well as the story. And like, trust me, I know, I know that it's like abstract and like, you have nothing to go on. And, you know, you just have to trust me on blind faith. And, but I begged, I was like, for, for vulgar holy thing, I was mm-hmm. like, please, please trust me with your story. And I, yeah. I recorded on my earbuds in Japan before I even had the birth of a studio, any kind of equipment, I could not, there was no possibility that I could have actually done this in Japan um, with any kind of setup because our walls were paper thin. Mm-hmm. There's no way I could have done it. But I was like, we will eventually go home. And this is what I want to do. And I'm desperate to do it. And I have to start with the story because this is the story that like, what is the, the flower that you cough to get up? Oh, so yes. So this story is, is, is that for me? Like it, it is desperate to get out. And Mm -hmm. I chased that down and I spent, when I, when I said in the first episode that it was 11 months in the making, Mm -hmm. that, that is partially true. That is from 11 months from when we got back to the States and I started setting up the studio Mm -hmm. to when the episode came out. However, for a full year before that, (laughs) you were still asking, (laughs) I was asking and it, there was two, two stories that I, it was, it was vulgar, holy thing that I was like, this is going to be my first, but I also started asking very, very early on about the truth about Eros. And I'm Mm. so excited that this is the one that's going to be next because that one, just that that one was the first one that really took me and like just squeezed me out like a like a rag Mm -hmm. um the the moment at the end where like there's just flint has never acknowledged this the fatedness um the the, the unity of of flint (laughs) that he's never acknowledged it until the bitter yep. end and he oh. said you know where he says oh god oh god you know i thought i would feel it he's like what when they took your leg <laughs> mm-hmm. oh yeah some master massively uh, you know deployed just... you know that's yeah, that big I... moment like yeah that's one of the first stories that i read when i started reading when i got into the fandom i remember it was like in the it was in the first wave of like 10 or 20 stories that i read and it oh it blew my head off that's yeah for sure <laughs> It's beautiful. And in fact, like there, as I'm recording, like sometimes with, with Tor and I talk a lot and, um, I will be like, Oh my God, I just recorded this. And like, I, I won't obviously send the the audio, Mm -hmm. but I'll just like on the, on the phone in discord, I'm like, Oh my God, just listen to this passage. And there's one that I just recorded where it's talking about, and this is still in Silver's, um, backstory before he gets on Paris's ship. Mm-hmm. where he's talking about the the beast devouring the sailors in this war mm-hmm. um and a beautiful passage like yeah. just gut-wrenching mm-hmm. 
And so they're, yeah, they're they're those stories that just reach out and grab you. And that's why you absolutely have to, because you're like, like, I need, I don't know. I don't know what I need to sacrifice in my life to do this, but I need to just on the record, like forever for posterity. I need to record my voice saying these words because they're so beautiful. Mm. And I, if I don't do it, then I'll explode. Yeah. It's some kind of, um, it's like a ritual cleansing. <laughs> it is very much. <laughs> it really, it feels like that sometimes, you know, you sit and you breathe and the characters come out of you. It's, uh, it's, it's un, undescri- indescribable, honestly. Um, yeah. So one of our, one of the thing I wanted to ask you about was because you and I are both doing basically the same thing. We're both uh, voicing male characters. And one thing I had to accept very early on was that there's no way that I'm going to be able to believably pitch my voice to the point where you're like, okay, that is one that is Flint's accent or Silver's accent. I am, I am good with accents. I am not great with accents. Mm. And also I'm just never going to have that, that the deep rumbling timbre that they have. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I feel like I have done and I feel like you do very well is rather than finding the voice, you find the rhythm. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And that is, that is what makes it, makes it work. And I have heard narrators who, uh, and these are like professional audiobook narrators who instead of finding the rhythm, just wreck themselves to try and find the voice. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work the other way. Like you have, it's, no, yeah. And there, I think, yeah, we have, a we have been born with, uh, and based on, you know, whatever health factors or smoking or whatever has happened in our lives, we have a set of voices that are available to us and that's it. I, I, short of, you know, doing, uh, like hormone replacement, which is not, you know, not something that, uh, that I'm, you know, that's in the cards for me. Uh, I, I can't get my voice any deeper than it is. I'm happy that I have already sort of have a lower register voice. Um, Mm -hmm. but no, you're right. I mean, it's just not going to happen. There's no, and, and especially Luke has a very, very deep. Yeah. Like Toby's is actually is higher um but they're both so distinctive see both of these guys have such distinctive voices that when i when i sat down and thought about it right when i was like what in the world am i going to do about this dialogue is that i i came to a decision pretty early on that there was no way like you just said there was no way it was there was no way i could do it and even if i was the best voice actor ever it was always going to sound wrong to the mm-hmm. reader, to the listener. They were always going to get this uncanny valley effect where it just wasn't quite right. And so I was like, cool, let's go in a completely different direction. And so what I do is I give it the tones of their character. Like Silver's voice is silvery. Like it's high and light and breezy. Um, so I actually do his voice higher even though Luke's voice is lower because Luke is lilting his voice yes. and Toby is gruffing his. So, uh, so in the pod fake, it sounds right. Even though it's 
it's not actually quote unquote right in a in an actual you know like tenor baritone sort of way or whatever um because because I, I realized I was doing that and I was like I do Silver's voice lighter but it's because Luke's doing that and so we're just doing the same effect with mine <clears throat> because Toby's is clearly like when he does his flint voice he's like he's really roughing it and lowering it as much as he can and so I just listened to them so much that I was like we're going to we're going to dispense with any kind of illusion that I'm ever going to sound like these guys. Yeah. I'm not even to start in on the accents because that's not a, that's not a strength of mine. It's not a thing I've practiced. And I just felt like it was going to get in the way of the character work and the emotional work. So I designed voices for them uh, that were sort of their core elements. And I, when I, when I key back into them, right. When I'm sitting down to do a pod fic, I'm when silver silver is silvery he is he's he's supposed to sound breezy and fey most of the time mm-hmm. there, obviously there are certain scenes where it gets slower and changes but I voice him irreverent and sarcastic like he has that tone in it because it's not it's not that much different from my normal voice per se when you're listening to it but it's just enough different that you know it's silver and flint Flint voice is one of my favorite things to do ever because they get to growl into the mic, which is not (laughs) a thing that you're just allowed to do out in the world. Like I'm the way that I look and the way that I present out in the world, I'm not allowed to growl at people, but I get to come in here and be Flint, which is so fun. It's like the best power fantasy ever. I, and, and all the lines are written down. So I just get to focus so much in on the cadence and his tones and I have so much fun with the Flint voice. It's probably my favorite thing about having started to, to do Podfic is that I get to come in and be Flint. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, it's like in this small space where only they can only hear me in with this beautiful script that's been written for me. I get to be Flint. <laughs> so that's fun. Nothing beats yeah. that. Nothing beats yeah. that. I love that. And what's what's interesting is that we came at it the exact same way because I am the same. My silver voice is higher than my flint voice, even mm-hmm. though I know mm-hmm. that, that that it is the opposite. But yes, silver is so has a has a lilting sing song timbre and I can't do that lower. I have mm-hmm. to raise it up. Yeah. Um and tonally flint is much flatter. And mm-hmm. so I can gruff that down. And I feel like, so you feel like you're, you love doing the Flint voice and that is, that yeah. is, you know, your sweet spot. It's so I fun. feel like I thought I was going to, because I'm such a fan of Toby Stevens. I thought that that was going to be my sweet spot. I can't do it as well, but like, but my sweet spot is silver. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> I feel like. I feel like I do silver so much better than I do flint. I'm working on it. I'm trying to get get well, them a, get better back every to level, time, right? You know. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just a work practice. in progress. Yeah, just it is. Practice. It is. But I feel yeah. At this point, uh, my my strength is is silver's voice. But yeah, same exact thing. I, I pitch silver higher based on his musicality, not based mm-hmm. on his actual vocal timbre. And it's interesting that that we came out mm-hmm. of the exact same oh, way. No, that's because exactly what you just said about uh, Toby does Flint's lines flatter. He does them drier, you know, yeah. 
unless he's giving one of the big like theater level speeches, he doesn't speak very much. And when he does, it it tends to be uh, more concise and uh, broody and moody and all that. Because he's a very internal person. He's very up in his head. Um, And Mm -hmm. so he doesn't actually speak very much. He doesn't actually answer questions very much. Um, But Silver, oh, Silver can't shut up. He is always talking and he loves talking. And you can feel that he loves talking, right? He loves playing with words. He loves sort of uh you know he's he's casting little spells in the air with them and he knows the effect they have he knows exactly what so you need to have that playfulness with him too when he's speaking he's almost incapable in some ways of not being performative and so it's it's fun to like come at him in that direction and then when you do bring him to a vulnerable moment you can just drop it right that's so fun because you set them a baseline and then you change it for the scene and then the silver sounds more raw or different uh, for that. And yeah, I mean, it, it's my favorite thing because in the moment those decisions get made about what, what emotionally this needs to read as. And sometimes the flow and the rhythm is so like, you just know, you know, I've watched the show so many times that I'll think about their cadences. And again, we're saying lines that they've never said in the show that I've never heard them say, but you still like feel, you feel how Flint would say it. Yeah. Um, and that part, comes easiest to me actually I, I trip over the prose sometimes because it's not always in the best order like we've talked about but um the dialogue is my favorite part yeah dialogue I love it. is my favorite part because <laughs> because uh, all day I can do the you know very steady narrator voice like choose a tone for the story and I and I keep on that that's that's not hard really unless there are those big uh big blockers in the middle like I said like a big hurdle or you're like wait is what is that word and I'll re- realize I've never said that word out loud because <laughs> it's like oh you have a big vocabulary but you you read these words you never say them that happened to me a lot as a kid because I read so much um mm-hmm. and I was learning words and I didn't know how to pronounce stuff like rendezvous for example it was very or dementia I didn't know how to pronounce dementia but I'd learned it in a, an Agatha Christie novel and I was like oh dementia you know and that happens to me all the time still People go, wait, what did you just say? And I go, I have a Southern accent. And they go, no, 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 it's not that. You you said that a weird way. And I go, well, let's look it up. And then I'm like, oh, turns out I've been saying that word wrong my whole life. So, <laughs> you know, we're, we're I'm always learning new things with doing this. Because I'm looking up words I never would have used from another author. And I'm like, that's cool. I just learned a new word. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, and I encounter that all the time just from different dialects in terms of I have lived all over the place but I grew up in South Florida surrounded by kind of the New York theater community that either was transplanted down there or comes for the winter the snowbirds coming down um following kind of theater in the south. And so I I always joke I grew up in the the New York Jewish part of South Florida. And so I have endless uh, debates about the pronunciation of certain words like (laughs) caramel. And um, they're like, no, 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 it's caramel. I'm like, how is it spelled? It's caramel. (laughs) Oh, oh, that's so fun because as a Southerner, I do say, uh, but I alternate. I'll say caramel sometimes and I'll say caramel other times. I don't know why. I just, my brain just picks one. But like, the pecan versus pecan thing. Yeah, I don't have any con- consistency on that either. I think it's because like, I don't know, I've talked to so many people from different regions and I just sort of tend to pick up their affectations as well. 
And so my accent's still a Southern accent, but I'll accidentally shift into different ways of enunciating things just mid it's not on purpose it's like I have a podfic voice which is different than my normal voice obviously um and I've I almost entirely pruned my accent for it because my normal accent is very drawling and it's not as easy to understand per se so I I want to clean it up and make it a little bit sharper and clearer for accessibility reasons um and for consistency uh but but then sometimes I'll just, and my spouse will go, are you using your pod fake voice? And I go, not on purpose. And I, think, <laughs> I realize that I do this, Kendra, when I'm talking to a service industry, when I'm giving an order, I just turn, I just start using the, the, my clear, the clear one, the cleaned up yep. syllable yep. so that they get me on the first try that that's, that's what it is. And it just happens. I just, yeah. You know, I start speaking extremely clearly and I've just, I don't know. I've always done that because I did that in college too, right? Because you don't want to have a steep Southern accent in college. <laughs> you don't want to <laughs> be given your opinion about uh, about the text with with this comfortability. So I was very much masking that in college. Uh, and so I was already doing it. I just didn't realize I was doing it, you know? I think yeah. the same, same way, um, you know, c- coming up, working in customer service, um, I just naturally always had a customer service you voice a customer and it, customer service turn voice. it, turn it on. You can turn it on and turn it off. And that just naturally bled mm-hmm. into my narrator voice. And that's kind of why I was always really good at customer service, because it's not about what you say. It's the authority in which you say it. If that just translated immediately to being able to narrate clearly and focused but yeah, and it it really does have a lot of crossover advantages to being able to turn that voice on and off. Yeah. Well, so we had talked briefly and you mentioned something just a moment ago that I think is really important in terms of tonality. Okay. Um, so we were talking briefly before about recording uh, scenes of intimacy and things like that. And you talked mm-hmm. about um, just a moment ago, finding a tone for a story, a mm-hmm. tone for the prose for the story, which I think is really, really important. And this yes. is one of the things that I talked about. Um, I was talking to someone about because m- the first one that I kind of tiptoed my way into was cinnamon, uh, yeah. has a little bit of spice into it, but it, it's not anything tremendously explicit, um, but it does have an intimate scene in it. Mm hmm. And one of the things that I talked about was having to find you, you go to the most intimate section of the story, find the tone that fits that. And, and then you take that tone and you apply it to the whole, that is my, my approach to it. Because Mm -hmm. if you have a tone that is jarringly different, right. That you go into that scene of intimacy and there's a shift, any kind of major shift in tonality. For me, when I listen to that, it takes me out. Mm. It either takes me out or it makes me feel like, Oh, this is now that kind of story. Instead of this is something that is flowing naturally from the emotions organically from the characters. This is just something that was always going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it, and it becomes just a natural extension of the story. So what is your approach in terms of tonality and believably doing those intimate scenes to where it it feels like an inevitability? 
Um, I think what you're saying is really good, a good strategy, because obviously I'm not reading these for the first time. I'm reading them for, you know, the fifth or sixth time. I know it really well. Nothing in it is a surprise. Um, And even though the takes are the first time I've said it out loud, I know what's coming and I know, I know what the mood of the story needs to be in a way because of that familiarity, right? It's not a first reading, like it's not a sight reading like you would do with music. So for, uh, for the one, one I did for my, myself, for my own story where it was drunk Flint and he sings the wild Rover song and it's very funny. It's a comedy. It's a comedy fic. It's a little one shot in season one. And it's just a funny little moment. Right. But it has some, it has some resonance in there as well because Silver's sort of seeing parts of Flint he didn't expect to, and he's very charmed by it. And he's also very, you know, off kilter from it because he's he's catching some feelings so that one's fun and funny and um silly even the diet some of the dialogue is absolutely you know kind of kind of just uh what you said earlier about trying to pull a laugh it, it is you know there's a one where where uh Flint, flint's playing with silver's hair and he's like are you a witch right and you th- there are tones to that uh, i think to your point what you said about you need to go find the funniest part or the sexiest part of the story or the most emotional part. And you need to know where it is and make sure that the tone you start with is similar enough to get there. So what I tend to do actually is I think of it as I'm riding along a little wave um of the story it it has that data and it's 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 gently leading me you know it's well written it's gently leading me there so I don't always start with the highest amount of intimacy per se but it is it is related enough that the transition will be smooth so what I tend to do is I'm reading sort of my regular clear like soothing tones that are you know, guiding, we're guiding the listener through. That's sort of what I, I want to be, I want it to be pleasant to listen to. I, I round a lot of the tones. I don't want anything to be too sharp. And then as we're getting into the pre-smut parts, you know, we're building the tension between the characters. I start to drop my register. I start to emphasize different words like, if the characters are looking at each other's lips or something, I linger on that the way it's lingering in the story. It tells mm-hmm. you the way, honestly, it tells you the way it needs to be read because of what's happening. You can't, and I've been listening to an audiobook recently and I was like, oh, this person does not understand how to read an emotional scene. Like she's fine and good, but when she got here, she just totally fumbled the bag because she read it exactly the same way as the rest of it. And that's just not going to work. Like this character just saw a dead body and they don't sound that upset about it. Um, yeah. It, it just sounded kind of like normal. And it, the person was like, oh, fuck a dead body. And I'm like, that's not going to work here. It kind of popped me out of it. Like you just said. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of can't, you cannot have objectivity, at least for me, that my process is I got, I'm going with them on this journey. I just need to let myself sink into it. And it is fully a performance and there are no separations of character anymore. You can't, if with, when it comes to the smut, you cannot be embarrassed because it will sound, it will sound like you are. 
Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You have you you have to sit there and read it and perform the erotica as if you are there with them and you are having sex with them. And that is that's hard because that's very vulnerable and intimate. Yeah. And yeah. and I don't know, it's just like falling into a kind of meditative there's a part of me that is able to completely detach it from my anxiety, which is, which is, is good because I'm a very anxious person, but I just stop thinking about, I'm not being perceived, right? I'm in a room alone and I'm just allowed to be the characters. And it makes it honestly where it's not even about me anymore. And that makes it where I can do it. It's about them and it's about how they feel. And as long as I'm feeling what they're feeling, it's going to be good. And it's, it is sort of an, not an, an exorcism because it's not always a, a bad thing that you're getting out of you, but it is like, it is the deep heart and voice of the character that you want to come out of you and you need to feel what they're feeling, which is why, like, when it is an emotional scene and I've voiced many of them, it's like, you start crying. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, when I did Hand in Unlo- an Unlovable Hand, the worst ending, I'm crying on yeah of course I am because he's holding his dead body you can't not go there you have to go there it's acting obviously you could just read it straight and it would be just as accessible but it wouldn't be a performance and that's the that's the performance part yes Um, yes so I totally agree with you you need to you need to as like as if you were reading it in your cozy little burrow and when you immerse yourself in that way you're doing that but you're performing you're doing Mm -hmm. the same thing you're, ta- you're taking yourself along on the story with them. It's like deep empathy type of, at least that is, that is my experience. That's what gets, that's what gets that channeling that, that the, the author's always like, Jay, I don't even know how you did that. And I'm like, well, I went into a room and I decided to let Silver and Flint be Silver and Flint. And I, it's not about me anymore. It's about them. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's all on the page. They already did it. I just have to. I just have to, to to follow the steps that were already written for me. And a good writer has those in there, right? Exactly, exactly. So. And um, I know when I did Not For Oneself, that that was so, for me, so emotionally pulverizing going through anything that is post-canon that deals with Flint on the plantation is already to me so sad. Yeah. <laughs> um. And just the emotion that I was at, because I did that whole thing in one sitting. And I think it's, it's not always possible to do the entire fic in one session, mm-hmm. but when, when you are able to do that, you get such an enriching experience from a performance standpoint, because it is like being able to perform the full length of a play. Because mm-hmm. you go through that emotional journey along with the characters. So <clears throat> there's no getting back into it. You're not like, oh, okay, I did the dishes. I fed the cats. I did, you know, and like, okay, now we're picking up from where, where were we? Mm-hmm. It, you get into it and like, there's, you get to that peak, that, that climax, the catharsis of the story. And then you live and breathe and die with that story. And mm-hmm. it is, it is so it's so overwhelming and so cathartic and just honestly everything I want to do you know it's it's I so fantastic I have 
I have been a performer for my entire life. Um, and so I have experienced all of the different aspects of performance. And this one, audio narration, has been the one that has, I've been able to take out all of my emotional hangups, all of my insecurities, all of that. I can leave that outside the studio. And this is pure dedication, mm -hmm. pure passion, pure joy whenever I sit down to do this. It is, for me, the one thing that I want to do. It, honestly, um, it's like a vacation from myself. Like, yeah. I just get to go and, and be them. And that is, that's priceless. <laughs> yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. So have you had any, like, crazy things happen in the studio um, in terms of either during recording session or something that you um, realized or something that happened in post when you're doing, when you're going through editing? Um, honestly, the only things I can think of are like, it's the road noise and yeah. cats. Uh, mm. there's some cat meowing in the background of some stuff that I just couldn't. Oh my gosh. There was a, there was a bird that always woke up at like 3am. And so there's a lot of bird chirping in the background of, I think cupcakes just, just wouldn't, it's just a bird outside and it is going. Yeah. My spouse and I called it the 3 a.m. bird because he always started chirping at 3 a.m. And I'm just like, there's no way to get that out. It's just in yeah. there. Um, the funniest one was the 3D printer because my spouse has a 3D printer and he loves it. And prints take a really long time. They take like sometimes eight hours, 10 hours. So when you start one, um, if you if you try to pause it in the middle, it often fails, right? It won't. Can, it won't complete the print so you can't really pause it so I would get home from work and he'd already been he, he used to have it in the office he'd already started one and it's pretty loud makes a pretty loud mechanical whirring sound and so uh he turned the speed down but yeah there's some 3d printer sounds in the background of some stuff too and I, I just like I remember talking to the author and I go hey I think I did a good job on this chapter but just so you know there is some 3D printer sounds. It's, it's You can almost barely tell, but it's there. And there are many, many takes of me. Podfic voice, podfic voice, nice, calm. And then motherfucker, because uh, a car will accelerate past my window and just ruin it. And yeah. I have to. So there's a bunch of funny bloopers of me. Just You just hear me fall straight out of performance and just curse very loudly because I'm irritated Dude. that I have to redo that take. The amount, the amount of profanity that <laughs> I have to cut out and conversely, because I chug water, like nobody's business when I'm doing this, yep. <laughs> the amount of like getting like, I'm like, Drinking Oh, that sounds. sounded really good. Yeah. That sounded really good. And then a belch, a belch. that I yep. like just microphone rattling belch. And I'm just like, God damn it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Oh, I know exactly you have to what you go mean. Go back, and you have to like, and and if it's if it's a certain because you, uh, you almost have to go back to the beginning of like a certain passage. Yep. Like you can't just for certain. I can you know um, punch and roll certain lines, like pop them right back in. But when it's part of an emotional ramp up, um, you kind of have to go back and get that full experience because you can you can hear the edit. So I, I'm I'm very very meticulous about going back and and making sure um, that if I have to cover anything up that I don't you don't really hear an edit. Mm -hmm. um, one of the I will say that that I had one of the weirdest things happen 
when I was going back and I was, I I was like a week or so into, into post and editing with, um, not for oneself. And I got to the last page and a half. And all of a sudden, as I'm listening back, like the audio goes from my normal voice to, I swear to God, demon possession. It (laughs) is, it drops an octave and I sound like (laughs) we are legion. And yeah. I'm just like, what the hell happened to my audio? And I had to go yeah, back weird. and re-record the mm-hmm. that entire page and a half. And then for Dr. Tankard's episode, I recorded mm-hmm. this song, The House Carpenter. Okay. And I did a, a melody voice track. And then I did a second voice track of Harmony. There's only two voice tracks that I recorded. Oh, wait, I saw that you talked about that in uh when in, yeah. Yes, because on the harmony line, when you go back and listen, there's a male voice. Yeah, and I don't that's know where it where came did that from. come from? I have no idea, but I left well, it in because we were doing a it was a whole satanic thing. Yeah, and I'm my, like, okay. Mine was mine has not done anything like that. Just just uh the the stuff you would expect, right? Like weird road road noise and cats screaming and um and burps like you said <laughs> uh, or i'll just be too tired and i'll i'll play it back and i'm like oh this is way too slow because i was so tired it has to yep. completely be redone it's not fast enough because i want it to be at that steady pace um yeah but just just normal stuff no demons <laughs> there's no just just uh, just cats <laughs> So one of the things, Jay, that we didn't get to last time that I really wanted to get to today was what is one of your favorite lines or passages that you're, you've written that you're really, really proud of? Um, something that you <laughs> always, like, for me, I have one that I can go back and like years later, I still think about that line. What is that line? What is that line or passage for you? Okay, so... I have this book here. <laughs> so yes. this, um, this uh, I thought about this and I was like, you know, it, it probably, it's probably from breakup. And I thought about it a lot. And I remember when I was writing the last two chapters, I was trying to dig into deep of what is the core of the thesis of why this hurts so bad. Right. Cause I'd been writing it for over a year and I felt like I'd lost my way a little bit. And I was like, I just need to get into silver's head because it's going to be his POV for these two scenes. And, uh, and I need to figure out why it hurts. So I wrote a very long sort of musing um, internal monologue, very poetic sort of deep melancholy of why it hurts and what is, is about the relationship that is breaking him to pieces and he can't, but he can't let it go. Um, and I ended up splitting it, right? Because it was too much. And I put part of it in the uh, breakup fight and part of it at the end, uh, the very end. And I think mm-hmm. that if I were to pick specifically, it's the very end of the story and they're in the gallery and the, and <laughs> Flint is uh, trying to convince him to stay with a blowjob because that is, that's exactly how they are. They, oh, I forgot to say that one of the other premises of the story is that they were only allowed to have any big character shift moments or communicate clearly during sex scenes. So the way that certain shonen anime, the characters have character developed through fight scenes. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do it, but only through, only through smut. So they're in the gallery. 
Flint's trying to convince Silver to stay via a blowjob. And Silver's like, I can't believe that, you know, this, all of this is happening. It's too crazy. I can't even think. And then he uh, goes sort of into his internal and he, he's thinking about it again. Let's see. The best part is that he says, but can he truly walk away? No matter how doomed, he's afraid nothing will ever be as good as this, as good as it was in the beginning. He'd glimpsed it for but a moment, their potential shifting darkly in a mirror, like the reflection of a shadow just over your shoulder. A flash, a facet of something, but when you turn your head, it's gone. If you stare too close, it disappears. An optical illusion, a paradox. Even if it is doomed, he cannot forget that glimpse of harmony, the reality in which they fit together like puzzle pieces, like the horizon and the sea, two elements perfectly aligned, perfectly matched. They made their own secret world in that one precious second, and Silver has been desperately yearning to return to that golden universe this entire time. But it can never be like it was. There's too much history. Too many ugly red scars on either side, jagged and angry and all too visible. He should say no. He should leave. And then at the very end, I'm skipping down. And he's saying, what's left for them in this wreckage? He thinks dizzily. Though the thought spirals twist and turn out of his mind's grasp like eddies in a violent storm, and he cannot fathom the safe path through the tempest. Does he have a choice? Did he ever? Silver takes a deep, shaky breath and opens his mouth to seal their fate. That's the end of the story. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that is truly, truly stunning. Like, and what is what is remarkable about that passage is that that is the tone through the whole fucking thing. Mm -hmm. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> That's, I, I could, I, you know, I couldn't say that it had to be that. I was like, I, I love that ending. I cursed myself with it. I can't move past it. I, it's, I can't believe I pulled it off. I worked on the ending for literally the entire time because I would, I set up a very, very specific outline, a very stringent outline. And because I outlined so extensively, I was able to hop around and just write parts that I felt like writing. And so I worked on the gallery scene for the whole time and I needed Ugh. it to be right. The ending had to be right. And it also had to echo canon. And I'm like, it's perfect. I, I rarely am able to be like, it's perfect. It's exactly it, the way it needs to be. But it, it was. It's, <laughs> it's, it's so remarkable. And I'm going to, I'm going to praise it again because... <laughs> The way that it sets up the fact that the story is over before it begins, mm -hmm. that they are, they have already found their end. It's already over. Yeah. There, there's so many parts in black sales where it like just Flint's first line. He says, it's fin, it's, it's finished. Done. Yeah. It's done. It's, when you it's agree. done. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Treasure Island is there. It's done. We already know how the story, we ends. know how it ends. I love it. <laughs> it's just and it, it, like it, it's the perfect parallel between your story and and the series and how it goes into Treasure Island. Mm. It's a it's a well, perfect 
it's a perfect tragedy. And so while we still have just a, just a minute or so left, what stories um, have you read recently that you would love to narrate? Um, oh, I thought about this and um, it's so hard because I just, I, I, when I know, I know so immediately and I just do it so immediately. I don't, I don't cue them up in that way as much. I, I want to do breakup obviously, which I told you earlier, but, um, I've been very busy to be honest, the last six months, especially, and I haven't had a lot of time to read. Um, <laughs> I barely had time to do anything except, you know, except work, which, uh, is that's, that's not super fun for a create from a creative standpoint, but, um, I don't, I don't know if there's anything on the mental docket right now. I think I just need the brain space to sort of be able to read yeah. again because, it has to be something that really strikes me, but I also have to com- be comfortable talking to the author about it because there's mm-hmm. plenty of stories that I love, but it has to be a labor of love for the author. It's a present for them. So that's really the way I approach it. Um, and also it can be hard to reach out to people who I haven't previously spoken to, you know, yeah. it, it's hard, it's hard, right. You know? Yeah. It's, oh, it's it is. Big, it's a big leap. Um, it's a very vulnerable moment. So um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think, I don't think really anything is like occurring to me right now, but it's probably just because I have not been able to read basically any black sales fan fiction in several months or really anything. I've been listening to an audiobook, which is hard for me, but uh, that's about, that's about all. Um, so there's nothing on my sort of mental docket, which I know you're like, but Jay, there's like a thousand things on mine. And I'm like, you're way more willing to talk to other authors than I am. Like, not, <laughs> I, I can't believe that you read. Like, I'm so I get impressed. I'm like, oh, Kendra talked to that person. Okay. Like, like I wouldn't. Have, I wouldn't oh, yeah. <laughs> like I, the amount of chasing down bones that I had to <laughs> yeah. do to get a hold of Val and Thug. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you. Yeah. I, I was let like, me tell you. What? I, was, I was like, oh, was so okay. Ex- I was so excited. I literally did a little, I ran a lap around the house. I was like, ah! <laughs> it's, ex- know, it's so exciting um, because I love those stories, but no, yeah. I just, I just, um, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to say beyond breakup if there's something that I want to do. Um, I'm sure it'll come to me, but um, I can't remember the last one I did. I think it was, uh, might've been, Besides breakup, it might have been cold, dark, depraved, which was whew, deeply, deeply yeah. devastating. Um, but yeah, I uh, I tend to record things for people I know really well because I because I, I'm I'm comfortable doing it really. Just yeah, like, yeah. I already have the relationship, and um, it's it's just easier to make that leap because it's such a such a vulnerable act that is occurring you know giving over yeah it really really is yeah so so what is one last piece of advice you would give to anybody who might be listening and think i want to do that i want to get into to um audio narration or just just even record a podvic for a story for an author that i that i you know really appreciate you know i want want to do this as a gift to somebody what advice would you give them so I always say you should just start and you, I think what, I think the best way to do it is because this equipment can be expensive is that just use your phone or your whatever mic that you happen to have and audacity, you know, 
get a free software and just give it a go, play around with it, you know, see if it's comfy, see how you feel about it. Send a clip or two to somebody you trust. Listen to listen to what other people do, right? Listen to other narrators. And if you do like it and if you do feel like you're good at it and it's something you want to do, then then buy the mic, right? Then buy the yeah. equipment. Yeah. But yeah. don't 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 like don't put too much pressure on it. I, I think just like writing and art and all kinds of things, it, I think starting and just going and getting the joy and passion for it is so important when you're first trying to start a new thing uh, because you don't even know if you're going to like it, but you shouldn't be scared, right, of messing up because we're all going to, when we all start to do new things, um, we're learning and it's not going to be the best. Uh, you're just going to have to practice and you might discover that you you do have a knack for it. Um, but yeah, the advice is just pick something that you love and put, you know, put yourself into it um, and just go. Um, yeah. It can just be for you and your friends. You don't have to, if, you, if you're nervous and you don't want to ask the author, you know, don't start there. Start with being comfortable with the work. But uh, yeah, I think just do it today. Today is the day to start. Today is yes. the best day to start the new thing. Um, yes, for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jay. It has uh, again <laughs> been such an absolute pleasure. We've we've spoken at length, and I think yes, you know, we, given given no boundaries to that, we could speak for another hour or so at least. Yeah. Um, but again, <laughs> <laughs> again, I'm so grateful for you for sharing the story with us for everything that you contribute to the fandom because seriously oh uh oh gosh (laughs) i i gosh i'm such a fangirl over you know every author that i bring in that i feature on the podcast this work these stories are are such kind of the the bread of life for this fandom um and continuing on and there's really nothing like it and i'm so grateful every single time someone publishes a new story i get so excited but it's a great community. We have a great community of people. It really it's is. Full of passion. It, it really is. Say what you want about, you know, fandom drama that happens in every fandom. This is a great fandom. It it really, really is. And it is a great community, especially in the fanfic community, mm-hmm. um, to which I'm so grateful to be involved. Even though I'm not writing, I'm so grateful to be involved in this community um, and just sharing these ideas, hearing everyone's stories. Wonderful. So thank you once again. Oh, um, you're so welcome. It was it was it was a pleasure. I love talking you, about you. this. It's, I love talking about black sales. You know. All right. Well, I will see everyone next time, and I am I'm not going to say goodbye permanently to Jay because I cannot guarantee that this is the last <laughs> we're going to hear of Jay. Um, because around, there's you know? there's just so <laughs> much. There's so much, and I may come knocking again. <laughs> oh you know i'm i'm around <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you very much thank you so much jay for gracing us again this month and granting us all this preview of your podfic and for your incredible insights and emotional honesty one of the things i love most about doing this podcast is the depths we get to in these interviews Definitely head on over to AO3 and devour the rest of this beautiful, sad, and incredibly steamy story. You can find Jay on Tumblr and AO3 as at Jay Noves, 
And she's cultivated a fantastic collection of thick recommendations to soothe every savage beast. You're certain to find something you love. Thank you to Kelsey, a.k.a. Magic Bubble Pipe, who painted the gorgeous cover art based on Orpheus and Eurydice, featured online for today's story. You can find them on Tumblr, at Magic Bubble Pipe, and on Patreon. Kelsey does stunning work and takes commissions, so definitely check them out. And thank you to all of our listeners. Whether you're returning or joining us for the first time, we appreciate you and we'd love to hear from you. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It truly does help us to be discovered by more listeners, which helps to shine a brighter spotlight on these amazing artists and creators. And great news, folks. I now have a Patreon. The costs that go into a podcast like this, including commissioning new cover art for each episode, are not insignificant. And in order to keep things running smoothly, I could use a little help from my friends. Just head on over to patreon.com slash reading between the lines podcast. Patreon members will receive early access to the episodes, three days early in fact, sneak peeks at the cover art for upcoming episodes, and you'll even be able to submit questions for our upcoming guests all at the $5 level. If you're a fanfic author and have a favorite story you'd love to hear and want to join me on the podcast, please reach out to me on Twitter at Kenterspring or at AudioficPod, or you can send an email to readingbetweenthelinespod at gmail.com. If you're not an author, but you've got a favorite fic you'd like me to read, all suggestions are welcome. Please reach out. Thanks again for listening. This has been Reading Between the Lines, a fanfic audio podcast. And I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.